the explicit moral foundation of libertarianism is and only is, where is the threshold in which initiating violence against a peaceful person is acceptable in society? We need to remove violent monopolies, which means that we need things in the realm of cooperation, of voluntary human interaction, and respecting each other as humans first. An unfair system, I believe, is in the slow, arduous, messy process of being replaced with a fair one and is going to change that power dynamic in such a way that we have to respect each other a lot more than we have. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Guy Swan. Guy's a libertarian and Bitcoiner who hosts the long-running Bitcoin Audible podcast, and more recently, the AI Unchained podcast. Guy's been a long-time advocate for decentralized technology, cypherpunk values, Austrian economics, voluntarist philosophy, and how all of these fields intersect. So when I first started learning about Bitcoin, I really needed to find some information that would be able to break down these very technical concepts into terms that I would understand. And I found that Guy's work with Bitcoin Audible was a really, really valuable resource for me personally. And it had a huge impact on my understanding of Bitcoin. But also more than that, I didn't really have a thorough understanding of Austrian economics. I didn't have a thorough understanding of libertarianism as a philosophy. And Guy really helped me through his podcast to to understand that. So I definitely owe a lot of what I understand now to, to Guy and his work. And more recently, I've actually been working with Guy personally. So me and Guy are working together on his podcast. And I really do see that as a privilege because Guy has got a huge archive of work now which spans hours and hours and hours of conversations and giving his own takes and reading articles, which I think demonstrates not only Guy's dedication personally to these ideas, but also represents a huge source of learning material, which I think will be used not only right now to help people learn about these concepts, but going into the future as well. So I really, really enjoyed having this conversation with Guy. For me, this was an opportunity to really go deeper into some of these libertarian principles with someone who really has done the work and done the research and thought very deeply about all of these ideologies. So if you like this conversation, make sure you give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, make sure you give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, welcome. Give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. Please consider supporting my work. You can do that via Buy Me A Coffee in the link in the description. You can also give a Bitcoin tip there as well. And also, I've mentioned this before about listening to the podcast in the Fountain app. If you haven't heard of Fountain before, Fountain is an awesome podcast app, which you can get on both iOS and Android. You can get all episodes of the Saying Free podcast on the Fountain app. And this is also a place where you can say thanks by giving some stats with a comment. So this is called a boost on the Fountain app, and this is all part of the value for value concept. So if you're getting value from this podcast, Send me a boost there with a comment and I will read it on the next show. It's super easy to get started on Fountain. Just download the app and you can top up your Fountain wallet either by sending Bitcoin on the Lightning Network or even just by using a bank card. And it's also worth mentioning you can also earn stats by listening to Fountain and being an active member of the community. So if you want to find out more, you can go to fountain.fm. But otherwise, just go into the App Store, download the app now and start using Fountain and getting involved with the Value for Value community. Any way that you guys can support me is hugely appreciated, but I'm especially trying to push Fountain right now because I definitely see Value for Value as the future of podcasting and one of the best ways to support content creators. All right, on to the episode. Guy, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to, to have you on today to talk about a bunch of different stuff, but in particular Bitcoin, and I've got a load of um, things lined up for you here. Questions from myself and from friends of mine. 
um, about ideas pertaining to libertarianism and free markets and all the rest of it. Because, you know, you are someone that I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and you definitely inspired me a lot in terms of my own thinking. Um, so, yeah, this is a really good opportunity, um, you know, to introduce you to my audience, but also for me to kind of go down a few rabbit holes with you as well. So um, that said, do you want to just give a little bit of an intro as to yourself, first of all? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it, man, a lot. Um, and it's cool to be here. Um, we've been working together for a while and I feel like we've gotten very few times to actually sit down and chat about stuff. Um, yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, for audience, I am uh, Guy Swan. Uh, I run Bitcoin Audible podcast as well as AI Unchained. My my motto or tagline, whatever you want to call it, is I'm the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Um, and uh, I've got proof of work, man. I got like some thousands of hours of Bitcoin audio, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I've... I originally went into film, actually, and, and kind of working back that, that direction. Um, uh, but I'm utterly fascinated, and this was my thing about film, too, is the, the structure of ideas and incentives and story in kind of making sense of the world. And Bitcoin was such a beautiful coalescence of so many things because of the kind of the underlying philosophy, the game theory and the incentive structure. I think I think Bitcoin informs so much more about how and why we should think about our political systems than the way we actually think about our political systems would apply to Bitcoin. Like it, it generally it, it genuinely undermines kind of the foundation for how we think about those things. And so when I went down that rabbit hole, I just I could never get out. Like I just constantly saw patterns that related to to life to to government to all network and systems like it just it it paints a fascinating picture for how and why society works by giving this kind of like micro or, or just kind of open experiment for so potently or so so specifically defining the edges that you can kind of see how things operate within the restrictions that are the Bitcoin system. But anyway, that's a long and kind of abstract way of saying I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and I have been unable to get back out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when did you actually go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Because I know you were a super OG, you know, when it comes to this, like, you know, seriously, I mean, compared to kind of most of the people who are still prominent in the space, you were definitely like among the, the very early people talking about Bitcoin. So when was that for you? And also, how did that come? How did Bitcoin come into your life? Yeah. So, um, my, I keep going back and forth between what year it was because it's hard to find the old price charts. And I, and I remember it specifically based on, because when we first heard about it or found it, um, and the price was in a skyrocket going from like, like sub a dollar to $33. And like, just kind of in like a span of a couple of weeks, we were just like, Oh my God. Um, this thing's going crazy. And I remember we tried to buy our first Bitcoin at like three bucks. And then it was like five dollars and it was like eight dollars and it was like twelve dollars. I mean, we just like it was just going to the moon and like you couldn't get a hold. of There's no way, no easy way to do anything. Like Everything was just like the hack, hackneyest thing that was hackneyed. It was like the equivalent of going on the Internet and meeting somebody behind a dumpster at a McDonald's or something to get anything. Um, but uh, so it was probably I think it was 2011. I think it was 2011 
or really late 2010 when I first heard about it. Um, and uh, my brother was taking economics uh, in, in school and uh, he had gone back to school um, after dropping out the first time, not knowing what he wanted to do, just kind of being sick of it. Um, and uh, he went back for economics. So we were living together and he was debating somebody. He debated his professors a lot. He he really hated like Keynesianism was just he saw the natural contradictions like just outright when he was being taught Keynesian economics and he would argue. And it was funny because like the professors would just basically come to the point of like, shut up. <laughs> like, like I'm not going to answer your question because there is no good answer. Um, like you taught us this thing last week and now you teach us this thing this week. And these two things can't live in the same universe. Like these are two fundamentally opposite principles that you're establishing. It's like, well, it's, it's different in macroeconomics. He's like, no, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. The weather physics isn't different when you're talking about a hurricane than when you're talking about in like a glass cup. Like it's the same, it's the same shit. You can't ignore fundamental realities and just pretend that, you know, everything's different up there. Um, they're, they're, because you got it big and convoluted and it's harder to see where its connection to the real things on the ground is. Um, but anyway, so, uh, he would come home and we would debate about this stuff and he would be like, they taught me this. How could this possibly be true? Um, and like, we would just kind of go through it for like a couple hours, like, like daily, like it was just kind of like our, our geeky thing. Um, and then he was debating with somebody on social media and randomly somebody was like, uh, you would probably be really interested in this Bitcoin thing. And he was like, what the hell is that? Um, and then he came home. Or I guess it was just like within the hour because we were at the same place. Um, he was like, dude, you've got to check this out. And then we just kind of went down this whole rabbit hole. We were we were kind of going down the libertarian rabbit hole. Uh, he, we were going down the economics and finding Austrian economics for the first time. And things were starting to click that had been bothering us for a long for mm -hmm. a while. And then my geeky ass was going down the kind of cypherpunk rabbit hole and like what was the power of the internet? How was the internet really changing things? Because I thought about it as a toy my whole life. Oh, I can get yeah. games and movies for free or whatever. Um, but then I realized like, no, this is genuinely reshaping the world. Like what the hell? This is this is huge. This is way bigger than I thought it was. Um, and so Bitcoin was kind of the coalescence of all of that. It was like everything we were interested in and then Bitcoin was there. Um and we went down, I remember the first night that we uh, uh, found or heard about whatever discovered Bitcoin. Um, we were up all night, we one all night long talking about it. Uh, in fact, like I had, uh, I was doing a media business at the time. I had like a crap ton of editing that I was behind on. And I, I, we just had to, we just noticed we were in the back room and like the sun was coming up. It was like, eight o'clock in the morning or like seven thirty in the morning or some crap. And I was like, Oh my God, we have not, we have not slept. I have, I have work to do. And we've, we've been barreling down this rabbit hole on like a high speed rail. So that was our, that was our introduction. And, um, then we were birthed or we were baptized, uh, in the <laughs> very first vicious, horrible, horrible bear market of 2011 or whenever it was. Um, uh, it like skyrocketed up to 30 ish dollars. And that after after trying to get in for like weeks, like money finally cleared through all the things, all the shady businesses that we were sure stole our money, stole our money, stole our money at every yeah. at every turn, because like it was just disappearing from accounts and it wouldn't show up. Um, we're talking so this like is three pre Mount Gox as well. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, well. 
think I think it Mount Gox was there, but like there was no easy there was no way to get money to it at the time. Right. I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Right. Mount Gox became the dominant exchange very, very quickly. Yeah. Um but uh regardless, we we had a hell of a time trying to get some. And so we watched the price go from like three bucks to thirty bucks while we were trying to get up like it's like 10x, right? And then we finally we, we I mean we were broke, you know, um, and we had a thousand dollars to our name. It was a joint account that our grandmother gave us to invest because we were gonna um we had been doing like some kind of stock market stuff and we were just trying to find like a good long-term strategy to like put it in places and then like bitcoin landed and we we're like oh my god this is it this is our first investment we're gonna be we're geniuses and uh we put it all in at uh like 30 some odd dollars and then it just just collapsed just utter blood for weeks and weeks and weeks and i remember because it was the exact same month it was within a few days of it's like three months it just plummeted like 95 percent in price or something like that i mean just horrible horrible price collapse um and i remember because of the the same month that i did the calculation that we had that our our entire savings account was like 72 dollars now or worth 72 dollars and uh uh i remember because I, I just wanted to throw up i mean i, I actually did throw up um and it was the same month that our water got cut off because it bounced. <laughs> like so, like like within like a day, I'm like running out. So like, no, 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 please don't cut it off. And I'm like calling my mom, please, can we borrow like fifty dollars? We can't pay for the water. And uh, so, so, so you were living with your brother at this time as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. But, yeah. but were you at university together? Or no, 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 no. I went to uh, I went to film school and I was done with school at the time. Um, he he went to school for engineering for like a year or two, uh-huh. um, and uh, I mean, killed it. Like he, it, crazy smart. I mean, as smarter smarter than me. Nah, no, nah, he's not. He's not quite as smart as me. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it did fantastic. In fact, actually got kind of um, disenfranchised with the whole thing because so many of the people had not even like the basics. Like we did science Olympiad for like years and years. So like we've been building stuff. My dad was a good contractor. Um, and like, so we had every tool under the sun and we've been building stuff for ages or whatever. Um, and, uh, he was kind of disenfranchised with the fact that like there were so many stupid people becoming engineers. Um, but he just, he just, he was bored with it. It wasn't what he, like he thought he was going to go build stuff and it just like, that's not what it was. Like it was just math class, you know? Um, and, uh, so he quit after like year and a half or two. Right. Okay. All right. So, so you had this, this moment, everything kind of, kind of came collapsing. It went from $30 to whatever it was, $1 or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Felt like you'd lost everything. At that point, did you feel like you'd lost faith in the, in the Bitcoin projects? I lost faith in myself a little bit. Um, and so my framing of it was, again, it was the coalescence of so many things that mattered to me. Like it was cypherpunk money. It was BitTorrent. It was a BitTorrent peer-to-peer sort of network, right? It was distributed. Um, it was it was the most glorious and brilliant way to undermine the Fed. It was Austrian economics codified. So it was really hard to lose faith 
in the idea of Bitcoin at that point for us. Um, we were already kind of so far down so many of the extracurricular concepts, so to speak. Um, so, but I realized I didn't know anything about it. Like it was just a couple of months and I'd read the white paper sort of, you know, like I didn't, I didn't understand half of what I read. Um, I, uh, we totally, totally just like full on bought in thinking like hyper Bitcoinization was like a week away. Um, and, uh, and we were going to miss the boat. <laughs> yeah. I think that's how everyone feels when they first go in. You think that yeah. you're, you, you're like, oh, I've discovered it just before hyper Bitcoinization, like amazing. Mm -hmm. And then you go crazy, but you realize that so many people have had that same thought before. Yeah. So I realized that I bought in on a vague dream, right? It was this like vague concept of what Bitcoin ought to be in my mind. And that if anybody asked me any sort of difficult question about it, I'd have no answer. Like I, I couldn't give any mm -hmm. explanation of anything. I didn't know what ad like how addresses worked or any of that shit. Right. Like it was just like a vague notion of what the system was. Um, and so I decided that now that we had no money in it, like it was it was essentially worthless. It couldn't barely could turn our water back on. Um, that I wasn't going to sell out. It wasn't going to get rid of it with the same uninformed position that I got into yeah. it. Like I wasn't, I already made the decision. I'm either going to live with it to zero or I'm going to find out, I'm going to be able to explain why I'm wrong, why this is not going to work. And so I just started reading every single thing I could get my hands on. Everybody who said it was never going to work. Um, everybody who said it was the greatest thing to, which wasn't a big list of stuff at the time. You know, I lit, I probably read every piece that mentioned Bitcoin. It wasn't that hard yeah. to do. Um, but, uh, I just, I just dove in every single bit of it. Um, and, uh, uh, slowly kind of in the 2012 range, more pieces and people talking about it more. And I just kind of came to the conclusion that the, the deeper I went to understand how it worked and why it worked, the more I was like, no, nah, no, this is just people just have no idea what this is and they have no idea what the, what we're sitting on and how important this is because it just completely undermines the way we think about most stuff. Um, like yeah. it's just a big, big mental shift and it's going to take a long time, which still the, the longer it goes, the more I'm like, no, this is going to take even longer. <laughs> um, and, and did your did your brother also go on that journey of kind of learning about it after that after that crash? Did he also kind of you know, get back to reading, get back to learning and understanding? Or was that a journey you went on on your own? Uh, I would say I probably did twice the baseload yeah. that he did, but it was always to go just like he would go learn economics at school and then we would debate about it. It was kind of the same thing in reverse. Like I would kind of dig deep into the Bitcoin stuff and then we would debate about it. We would talk about it. Okay. Cool. Um, so it was, it was for all intents and purposes, we went down the same route at the same time. Nice, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, that that gives like a really, really good picture. I've definitely learned some things there about um, your your orange origin story that I didn't know before. <laughs> so after this happened, you discovered Bitcoin. It sounds like you were already kind of going down the 
rabbit hole of like Austrian economics before you found it. Mm -hmm. After Bitcoin, how did that tie into your philosophy? What did you think after that moment? Was it a matter of thinking, okay, well, I found, I found the thing. I found the, the, the holy grail of Austrian economics. Did you, did you immediately pair the two there or did you look at it more as a technology? Like how did your philosophy basically adapt after finding Bitcoin? Um, I, I kind of imagined it or, or I pictured it as if I'd found the holy grail of Austrian economics is okay. how, do you, how do you build a technological system that enforced an economic system? And like that was why that was one of the reasons why I thought it was so insanely profound, because we had never thought about the our network systems, government being a great example as very thoroughly as designing an incentive system or is designing a a structure of a network um you know you can find it you can find language from like kind of the founding fathers or whatever that kind of talk about it in that vein but not it's obviously not from the context of a technological network like the, the concept was just non-existent in the 1700s right um but that's what you're establishing and and you can kind of find hints of that framing without them acknowledging or understanding the concept that they're leading to um, uh, in how they designed what was the political system that was supposed to be an independent, extremely difficult to change set of rules. Um, but like kind of when, you know, when, when I found that, like it, it was, it was 100% the culmination and it was also kind of like proof of concept, right? Is that like, if this shit works, then it proves so many of the Austrian principles, like the base principles and like really deeply refutes Keynesian economics. Um, like if, if the, if the Bitcoin economy isn't in just like permanent and utter decimated depression because it's going up in value, which obviously you see is the exact opposite. Every time it goes up in value, it's, it's obviously the opposite of depression. Um, uh, there's more activity, there's more buying, there's more spending, there's more everything. Um, uh, but uh, if it essentially proves so much of the Austrian theory, we have this live experiment that we've never had. Like you've never been able to compare the two. Like Keynesian economics is always kind of positioned as like, oh, well, sure, inequality is worse. Sure, um, poverty is worse. Homelessness is worse. Real estate has gone up in price. Healthcare has gone up in price. All these terrible things have happened. But uh, it's not because of us printing $20 trillion out of thin air for the last 20 years. It's because the market is naturally destroying everything and it would have been all worse had we not tempered it with the $20 trillion that we printed. But we have no – you can't compare. This is unfalsifiable. It's just, it's just make up fairyland where everything's horrific and now everything's not as horrible because we saved you from it. And like – just like, OK, well, now we can actually prove the alternative. Now we have a system where you can't really you can't fuck with it, right? Like Bitcoin is going to run one way or the other, and it's either going to disprove or, um, or it's it's either going to prove your point or, you know, make them look like idiots. And I think it has and will continue to do so. And I think that's also well, there's a pretty serious defensiveness against like Bitcoin has to fail, right? Like it can't can't even come close to working. It's just speculative. It's just blah blah blah. It's all these horrible things, um, but uh. But yeah, so. Okay, great. So like I, I want to get in, as I kind of like mentioned to you before starting, I do want to like reserve a big part of this conversation to actually going into the libertarian ideas because as well as being mm -hmm. like 
I really, you know, the, the guy who's, who's read more about Bitcoin than anyone else, you are also the guy who knows a hell of a lot about Austrian economics and, you know, about libertarianism as a philosophy and stuff. So I really want to reserve a big chunk to kind of go into that stuff because, yeah, just right. to explore some ideas. But just before I go into that, just for the listeners in my audience, not everyone's a Bitcoiner. I know that I have like quite a lot of, of Bitcoiners in my, like, as my listener base, but I know that a lot of people, they're not quite there yet. So for those people who are listening and saying like, well, how do these things relate? Like, how does Bitcoin really bring about that? You know, they see it maybe as digital money. They, they see it as kind of, you know, these digital numbers on the screen and maybe they see it as an investment, but they haven't quite made that connection of why Bitcoin actually can help to bring about a world of true free markets and a world of, you know, libertarian principles. Can you give the kind of 10,000 foot view of like how that interoperates? Okay. So I would say the best way to understand society is as a, an agreed upon set of rules for how to deal with the most basic of interactions is how to deal with trade and how to establish who owns what so that trade can occur. Without ownership, you don't have trade. Without trade, you don't have specialization. Without specialization, you don't have society. What we need is someone able to make sandwiches and someone able to make cars because the sandwich guy can't make any cars and the car guy doesn't know how to make sandwiches. Um, we need them to independently be able to do their work and then cooperate in such a way where we know how to understand the value difference between how difficult or desirable a sandwich is versus how difficult it is to make and how desirable a car is. There is no objective measure between those two things. It is 100% relative, which means all you can do is take the individual judgments of what one is willing to give up to obtain those things and then compare them together, which means that you need an independent medium. Otherwise, this entire system doesn't work. There's no communication between what one thing is worth compared to another thing. That is where money comes in. That's why it naturally arises in every single society. Just quite to the contrary, actually, it arises so that society can exist. Um, money is the foundation for why society is able to scale past just a small social system, a small community of 100, 200 people. Um, uh, referred to more specifically as Dunbar's number, if you want to dig down into that, is, is the number of relationships that you can actually hold where you could have a sort of credit where like I could just be like, I, do, I did something for Johnny and I know like a few weeks later, Johnny can do something for me. This reciprocal altruism, I'd be nice, you'd be nice. Yeah. Um, but you can't do that with somebody you don't know, you might never see again. Like if somebody's coming through town and I'm nice to them and I provide something to them and then they leave, mm -hmm. well, then I've just, I just, I just have a deficit. I just took a loss. Um, but if you have an independent medium that the entire system, the entire society uses to trade against this sort of accounting system, this ledger system of who owns what, um, uh, well, then uh, that person can just give me basically society's credit and the society's paper notes of like, uh, well, I know I can get this for value somewhere else. Um, or really it's, it's not a credit, it's an asset. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we can, we can create society. We can have a, we have an, a giant, like psychotically con, uh, uh, complicated and multifaceted and constantly shifting system of production and creation and judgment of value 
where we are all cooperating ra rather than in competition, rather than stabbing each other to take what the other person has. Um, that is absolutely fundamental and critical. What Bitcoin does is right now we have a ledger system. We have an accounting system of society in which there's a select group of people who can just futz with the numbers. They can cook the books. They can do whatever they want. And if you imagine it in like a context of like there are 10 people in society, like shrink it down. This is this is why microeconomics and macro are the same is if all you do is shrink it down to something simple, you can understand the principle. There's 10 people. One person does all the food. One person builds all the houses. One person builds all the cars. One person gets all the fuel and energy. Uh, you know, one person, everybody does all the things, but only nine of them do the things. The 10th person is just the one person who gets to print money. They... They just have a they just have a printer and they just make as much money as they want and they buy everybody's houses. They buy all the food. They buy all the cars. They literally own all the stuff, which is the only point of it. Like the money is there's no point for money like outside of communication. It's like a language. You hoard all the language. Well, no, the, the point is, is that you, you want money to get a car like anybody you ever ask is like, what would you do if you had a million dollars? It's like, oh, well, I could have this stuff. X stuff. I could go on vacation. I could travel around the world. I could buy a big house. They don't want the money for the sake of the money. Nobody's going to eat the money or you know build a house out of the money and live in it. No, you get it because you want something else for it. Um, which means that to print the money just means that you're you're the only one that's able to take everything out of society and contribute nothing back in. One person is putting in food, so they can take out a car. The other person is putting in a house, so they can take out food. Like we're making sure that everybody's cooperating and actually participating and pulling the fucking weight in this system. Someone who comes in and just futz with the accounting just says that like, oh, well, I just I look at it's a record, right? If you make a million sandwiches and put them into society and eat none of them and you have one dollar per sandwich, you have a million dollars. That means that you've provide you fed a million people and you've eaten no meals. You have provided a surplus of a million meals, which you are owed back which you can then take, but you can just eat for the rest of your life. Thank God, because you made all these sandwiches. Um, and so what your savings are is what you are owed back, in a sense, um, from what you have already contributed. It's just a record of the stuff you've already done for other people. When somebody is able to cheat that system and just make a million dollars out of thin air, it means that they can take out a million sandwiches and do nothing. They can provide nobody with anything. Um, that it's, it's just cheating. There's never an exception to that rule. It is always cheating. Even if the prices of those things don't go up because we just get that much better at making houses or sandwiches or cars. And so the prices still stay relatively low. doesn't matter. That one person has still viciously cheated the entire system. They are not contributing. They are just taking. And so our system is a system of unfair rules. One where one group gets to selectively take and contribute nothing back. And of course, when they do that to the tune of trillions of dollars, it creates this entire industry of people who just, just, just ply, like plead to them and, and worship them and just be like, give me some of it. Give me some of it. They lobby for it. They, they, you know, make do favors for subsidies. They blackmail them to get special attention. Um, like everybody just, rather than actually doing the things that society needs, they just, crowd around the money printer and they do whatever they can to appease the most the powerful people who control the printer to just get a share of the newly printed money so that they can also be the ones who just take stuff out of society and give nothing back you so you you create this literal class 
of a, a counterfeit industry. Um, so fundamentally what Bitcoin is, is make it so that that person doesn't exist in the system. So that there's no one who can cheat the accounting. When we're talking about the per make sure that person doesn't exist in the system, the people right now, I'm, unless there's any exceptions I don't know of, is basically governments. Basically governments and, and central banks who essentially governments and are central banks. Yeah. Know, an arm of the government. You know, they, they really operate in cahoots. So what yeah, we're talking bank about... can't maintain itself without government enforcement to use the central right. bank notes. Right? Right, Otherwise, yeah, it's just yeah, somebody yeah. committing fraud. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's that's a good distinction, basically. That it's a fraud if you try and print money, but if a central bank prints money, then yeah. that's policy. Like that's government yeah. policy, essentially. <laughs> um so yeah, like that said, when we're talking about getting rid of that person, when we're talking about get rid of the person who's contribu contributing nothing, but they're just basically uh, you know, um playing number games essentially, you know, adding numbers to to a a, a ledger. You know, mm -hmm. if, if there if a ledger even exists, um, and then distributing about without actually providing any value, we're talking about getting getting rid of government. So this is going to start leading us into these ideas of, uh, like essentially this libertarian world and what it's going to look like. So before I get into some of the more like nuanced, you know, I guess like edge cases about libertarianism and stuff like that, do you agree as a fundamental idea that like Bitcoin necessarily, if we have if we live in a Bitcoin world? And that becomes the dominant money that government basically becomes a thing of the past, that government is no more. Or do you think that government still has some role to play? I'm interested to know basically like where you see that going. I would say it's particularly in the mind of a lot of people who like where government is placed kind of in their map for why things work. Um, I would say it's not so much that you get rid of government um, because you're, you always need governance systems. You always need means of like systemized means of interacting with each other and dealing with conflict when in areas in which they do arise. It, what, it is, what it actually means is getting rid of the government exception. Like when two people are interacting, there is this explicit notion that we're not allowed to be violent. I'm not allowed to, if, if, if we don't agree on something, I can't pull out a gun and shoot you in the head and be like, well, now everybody agrees with me. Like, like that, that is explicitly outside of the realm of what we're allowed to do, each, do to each other. The thing is, is that government is the exception to this, is that if, if I pull out my gun and point it at you and then you try to run away or you kick me or something, but I'm an officer, well, now you're resisting arrest and I can shoot you in the face. And the fact that it arised from a disagreement and I was just, being unruly nine times out of 10, 99 times out of a hundred. Nope. You're just resisting arrest. Um, you better hope that you find an insanely principled person who doesn't kind of have this state worship that the officer can do whatever they want. Like it's crazy. Like a uh, hundred and 120 years ago, kind of in like the, uh, uh, 19, uh, 1800s era citizens arrests were as common as police arresting. Oh, someone. really? Where, that, where was that? Uh, it just, it just kind of in general, especially like after oh. moving West or whatever, because there was, um, uh, oh, when, when we, when we moved West, it was such an amalgamation of so many people from so many different cultures and even languages because people were coming all over the world to, for the gold rush, um, is that we actually had common law systems come up and there wasn't, there wasn't more explicitly a, um, an overarching sort of federal government position there it was it was more voluntary agreements between people in like a common law as to how we sort out disputes and it was really important for 
things to work out that way because there was basically a recipe for as much conflict as you might think. Um, and there's a there's a brilliant book called uh, not, The Not-So-Wild Wild West that we have this crazy idea that the Wild West was like this psychotic, super violent thing when the reality is like almost perfectly the opposite. It was like an insanely docile thing and, and the reason – the reason nobody shot, like very few people shot each other was because everybody carried their guns to the bar. <laughs> like, like you, if, if you're going to get shot, if you're going to get shot back, people don't shoot people. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's the power dynamic. It's, it's an extreme power dynamics. The fact that I have a gun and you don't, that makes it easy for me to pull it out and shoot you. Um, whereas if we both have a gun, um, uh, it's, that's, that becomes a far more difficult and far more lethal um, a consequence for engaging in that sort of behavior. So like a great example is just like a simple statistic is like, we have this idea that there's like these super famous bank robberies from the wild West. Um, and, uh, and these, you know, bandits and all this stuff. Well, the reason they're so famous is because they were so rare. Um, and they were in such like kind of blatant violation to, to the way the system was set up, but there were actually fewer bank robberies in the entire period, like the two or three decades, um, of the entire period known as the, the move West, um, than there are in Chicago in a year, the whole, the whole period, the whole period, the whole zone, the whole territory, everything, Chicago beats them. And when it comes to like, like basically organized violence. Um, so anyway, long fancy way of saying that, um, uh, it was common for people to a citizen to arrest someone else for a crime or to, uh, essentially pull people together because they thought of it as their responsibility. Um, and, but there was no exception for the officer. The officer couldn't do a special, couldn't special beat someone up. Like this, the rules were the same. You put on a costume. It was just supposed to be an indication that you could be trusted in that role rather than thinking it was just going to be some random person, but it wasn't some exception. It wasn't, it didn't mean that you could go around and just beat somebody over the head with a baton and then say, it was like, well, uh, he resisted my arrest and I had suspicion. He, he looked suspicious. You, you know what I mean? Like this, this idea that one person is just excused for committing violence. Um, so in that same, in that same sense is Bitcoin quote unquote, getting rid of government doesn't get rid of government. It just means that government plays by the exact same rules, which is all the language that we have for setting up government. It's government by the people for the people, right? But if I don't have the right to steal from you, how could I possibly delegate it to someone else to steal for, from you on my behalf? I can't delegate something that I can't do. Like it, it just, It's just this giant system where because it's big and because it's powerful, we realize that any subset of individuals or small group can't deny it, cannot contradict it if that big giant violent system is willing to essentially kill them, essentially put them in cages for going against it. And as much as we want to think it's for good and, and we, we want to frame it like, OK, well, now we can achieve really great things in the world. Look at look at how much capital we can pull together and nobody can say no. Can't we just make the world a magical place now? But it's an entire realm of, well, how do we use violence to get the things that we want? Like at the end of the day, every single law is enforced by violence and the threat of death. The fact that 99% of the time it doesn't end that way is just because people don't want to die. <laughs> it's not because right. it's not there. Um, so it's critical to understand that the most mundane of laws 
is enforced, whether it's a fine. Well, you don't pay the fine, what, do you, what happens? Police come to your door. You get summons for court, and then the fine goes up. And then you still don't, you still refuse. You still don't comply. Then they, they come to you and they arrest you or they, they steal some of your stuff or they evict you, whatever it is. Um, and again, it, next, next round, what do they do? They put you in a cage. You try to escape. You try to fight the guards. You die. Like it just – it doesn't matter how mundane the beginnings of it is. It's just kind of like you can't like convolute your way out of the fact that at the end of the day it's violence. Um, okay, but – Sorry. Long tangent there. Yeah, no, no, but I, that's good because it, 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 you know, I'm going to kind of like try, try to kind of like narrow this down to specific examples because, okay, okay. and I'm going to play devil's advocate, you know, because I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I also want to mm-hmm. first of all play devil's advocate just to try to iron out these ideas, but also to to try to test some edge cases, which even I don't have a firm answer on. But let's, you know, what do you see the role being then of government? Because you say that you don't, you think that governance is still legitimate and will still occur and is a naturally occurring thing. Um, so what does the governance look like? Because most people say, oh, well, this is what we've got. Governance means, you know, if someone's committed a murder and they're a suspect, you tell the police and they go around and it's legitimate that the police uses force because, you know, we have essentially granted them the power. Yes, we don't necessarily have the power individually to go and put a gun to that, you know, to that guy or to, you know, maybe you have the, the possibility to arrest them, but you don't have the ability to go and threaten them with death. But, you know, you know, we've we've kind of collectively come together and said we're going to give the power to a government to an entity which is designed to do that. Which you know, in in many people's views, they would say, well, that's the role of them. You know, police and things like that. So, what do you actually see the role? Well, first of all, I guess like how would you deal with that particular um, angle? Like you know, that mm-hmm. they they do have the the you know, it makes sense for them to have that power in as a entity. And second of all. If you don't think that they should have um, powers such as those, what do you see the the governance responsibility to be? You know, what is the role of a governing um, body of some sort in your in your worldview? Well, I would say it it doesn't preclude when when I when I say it doesn't. You don't have the right to go and put a gun to somebody's head. You don't have the right to initiate this against a peaceful person. But if someone has murdered someone or is trying to murder someone, is beating someone, you absolutely have the right. You, in a sense, morally um, or ethically, maybe is the better the better term. You have the obligation to try to help that person. Um, uh, but a a murderer has absolved their right to that. They they've given that up specifically because they have taken away the totality of rights of someone else. They have the that violation is the one that gives permission to to then reciprocate essentially okay but then what if they have like let's say that they're we don't know for sure they're a murderer but they're like a suspect you know you have a suspicion perhaps a very strong suspicion that they are the murderer let's use that as an example we don't know necessarily whether they have committed a crime that is where governance comes in and that's where it's critical that the system of governance does not have some exception to being able to steal or initiate violence uh, from someone else because it, eventually it just gets taken over by the very people we're trying to punish. Like, there's no way to undo that incentive. So you want the rules of how governance can be set up to be lower than the governance structure. Um, so a great example or the perfect example really is counterfeit money is uh, is if they are supposed to govern the economic system, the one thing that they absolutely should not have is an exception to the economic system because it just means everybody who wants to abuse and manipulate the economic system will just 
just rush as fast as they can into the government system. Um, so uh, the idea is that you have to work within the basic moral restraints, the basic restraints of property rights. Um, in, in the case of uh, – and this is also why uh, implementation is a whole lot more difficult than theory, right? Um, there's, no, there's no obvious way in which there, can, there isn't some sort of implied contradiction, so to speak, um, which is why governance systems should be as small as possible. Um, uh, a, a great way I love to think about it um, is that it's about scale. It's about how distant you are from the people that you are interacting with or from the people that you are, quote unquote, governing is it's extremely, extremely hard to be a tyrant when it's 100 people, you know, um, it's extremely easy to be a tyrant when it's 300 people that you don't care about when they're so distant and they're so powerful and they're so far away from you that you can't you don't know the person you can't there's nothing you can do. It just seems like this giant Leviathan that is impossible to even contend with. Um, so the, I don't remember who this was. This might be like Walter Block or somebody like that. Um, but, uh, I love this framing was that at the family level and the sort of like neighborhood, local community level, you should be a socialist at the, um, or you should lean towards social, the socialist ideal. I help you, you help me, right? We we're fine with like a social credit system. Like we're a community, um, uh, then at the sort of like town to city level, you should be a liberal. At the state level, you should be – or the county and then going up to the state level, you should be a conservative and a libertarian. And at the sort of uh, federal global level, you should be an anarchist. Um, and that is the only way to prevent the worst of the sorts of – horrible external externalities and outcomes of a huge socialist totalitarian government system. The more power you put, the further away, the less you can do anything about it when that power starts going against you. You know, like uh, a great way to frame it is that, especially when we think about it in like a sort of vindictive way, you know, it's very easy for us to like Great example is, you know, referring to them as the counterfeit class, right? Is that I have this kind of inherent, like, what a bunch of cheating bastards, right? Like I would, I, I would get this, this self-fulfillment, this feeling of like justice if these people were harmed. Well, when I think about doing that through the government system, I have to temper that. I have to remember that this is kind of an internal, like we all have evil inside of us, right? We can all watch someone get harmed and feel like the good, the right thing happened. Like watching a murderer die doesn't, doesn't make me cry. Um, and, uh, so my perception of who is a murderer matters a lot as to what kind of a person I could be or what kind of horrible thing I could allow to happen and not push back. So in the context of like government, I have to remember that the framing is any power that I give to government, any, any power that we give to a politician in order to do some harm to someone we don't like is the exact same power that a politician we do not like can take against someone we love. Every single thing is universal. To assume that only your opinion, only your subjective value, only the people who support or like you would ever be in power when you create a structure of power is an insanely naive and very, very uh, 
bad consequence ideology to have because inevitably at some point, well, even if it does work out that way for the first four years, someone you hate is going to be in that position. And what are you going to do? Because you just gave them the power to take everybody's money for whatever program they want or to give an unlimited number of subsidies to X corporations. And now what we have to scream and complain about it and they censor you, they put you in prison, they they what do they have that they're they're making their vision of the world right there. It's justice, just just like you. It's, it's totally OK for them to do it, do it that way to force everybody in it. Um, it's just but if we if, if the we incentive structure together, falls apart very quickly. Sorry. No, that's 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 all right. I I just want to um, push on this point a little bit about the, the whole governance idea, because the if we have some kind of governance, let's say that it's not some kind of federal government, let's say it even is on a small or local level. How does that emerge? Does it emerge through some kind of democratic process or does it emerge through some kind of other process? Because I guess when I when I think about how this emerges, like we have basically every nation on earth which looks something like, um, you know, it's some f- they're all very, very similar. Like there's not mm-hmm. really, I can't think of any nation on earth that doesn't have some level of government. And I am including, some people say, oh, well, what do you mean? Like, you know, China's nothing like, America or whatever. And I'm like, well, actually it is. Like if you think, if you look at it from, from maybe like a libertarian perspective, you look at them both as be as being, you know, it's statism in, in various form. Like one is more extreme than another, but it's, they're still two massive status nations. Right. Mm-hmm. But let's assume that, um, that doesn't exist. And we're, you know, going more on a local level. When I kind of think about it in my mind, I think, well, everything just is going to trend towards that anyway, because people, let's say they do things on a local level and they get together and say, okay, these are going to be the rules that we operate by. And these are going to be the people who we trust to kind of ensure that the rules are being followed. You know, that inevitably is going to just kind of like keep going downstream essentially until at the end of it, they all of these various, you know, um, kind of institutions, whatever we call them, they come together and they come together. And then at the end of it, you have something that looks like a federalized uh, government because it makes it seems to be the the fact that societies scale by having like more centralized rule sets which everyone agrees to and they tend to just become federalized so i guess my questions here are like how do you prevent that happening and you know how, how do we essentially prevent any kind of um if you anoint someone with any kind of more power even if that power is just to determine the rules of a small set of people how do we prevent that from just eventually downstream looking like a federal government that, you know, appears tyrannical to us. I I would say it's a whole lot. It's it's actually not quite as extreme as it might seem to prevent that cascade, but it is largely a technological problem, not a cultural or political problem. And what I mean by that, uh, The Sovereign Individual is a phenomenal book. Yeah, and I love, love their framing of it, but it's about it's un, it's thinking about history through major technological innovations in violence and the ability to execute violence against other people, and understanding the economics of violence and why the state emerged in the first place. So what you're talking about is essentially a naturally centralizing force, right? Is as you yeah. begin to create this thing, it feeds back on itself to get a little bit more powerful and then organize at another level and they get a little bit more powerful. And the, the ability to increase the power outweighs the ability to escape, the ability to exit that power structure. 
Um, and in doing so, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it essentially has total power. But then it ends up the incentives become so out of line with reality that it collapses. So we go through this process of history, just huge explosion and power and wealth and then collapse, huge explosion of power and wealth and collapse. And it basically coincides with the degree of freedom versus the degree of giving up freedom to get all the free things from government. Um, and uh, so the reason that cycle occurs and that feedback loop occurs to greater and greater centralization is because the payoff from organizing and scaling violence is greater than the cost of, uh, or excuse me, is, yes, no, yeah, is greater than the cost of avoiding violence. So a, a great example is our first governments arose during the agricultural re revolution. Why? Because when you're a hunter-gatherer, you carry all your wealth with you. you know, it's basically on your back. You don't really have static capital. Um, so if a tyrant ever comes or a mafia ever comes through and says, I'm going to break your legs unless you give me everything you own, even if they do that once, well, then you just pack up the rest of your stuff. You pack up your family and you'll just get the hell out. Um, so there's not really any means to keep that structure, that violent structure in place because the, the cost to exit is less than the cost of staying. Now, let's say the agricultural revolution happens and now you've built a house, you have a homestead, you have a big plot of land, you have a lot of crops, you have oxen, all of your wealth stuck right where it is. 99% of it, in fact, you know, you can barely carry anything on your person. Uh, and your family lives there. Everything that you love is there. Mafia comes by, says, I'm going to break your legs. I'm going to burn down your house and I'm going to sow salt into all of your crops unless you give me 20%. You just give them 20%. You can't, you can't walk away. Um, and thus, organized mafia and organized resistance to mafia, which is just, well, let's have a mafia where we control it, essentially, um, becomes the norm. Because you want a collective form of essentially trying to negate that economics of violence by taking it in your advantage. Yeah. Um, so what you do is you try to create a convoluted – it's kind of like creating proof of stake um, is that it kind of works for like some span of time. But it's kind of got this existential crisis where no matter what happens, like it, it kind of go goes in the wrong direction until it's too centralized. Well, that's essentially what kind of government is, is how do we protect ourselves from the mafia by creating a mafia we control. But then we put incentives, incentives in place that just makes it grow until it, it collapses and we have to start over. Um, so the key is in the margin is right now that feedback loop is even if it's just 1% positive, it means society can last longer, but it still has the same end, right? Is that if it gets 1% more centralized and 1% more powerful and wealthy uh, when it adds uh, X amount of violence um, or X amount of scale, well, then that 1% will just compound. doesn't matter what yeah. you do to try yeah. to keep it down. It will just keep compounding until it gets too big and falls under its own weight. Now, if it's just under 1%, if it's, if it's just it's just negative 1%, if it's negative 0.001%, well, then you've broken the trend positive and you've, you've enabled a feedback mechanism that even in short periods of centralization and growth, it can ultimately be reined back on a long enough time scale. So the idea is how do you create a technology that allows the exit of value that is easier, has more bandwidth, and... Um, uh, has what, do you, more what do you mean by exit of value? Sorry, just to pick you up on that. So, so the idea, the, the way you defeat that mafia 
is how do you take all your crops, your home, your oxen, and your oh, family with you? Okay. Right, so right. that they can't take that 20%. Yeah. So, so it's basically how to defend yourself against extortion. How do you defend yourself against extortion? And it all lies in the cost of exit. Um, uh, so in the context of that, when we're thinking about governance and government in today's age, the idea is how do we create a funnel, a, a pipe big enough for anyone to quickly exit enough money, enough value out of a system that turns fraudulent or tyrannical such that their returns from increasing their violence to 40% is actually less than when they were being violent 20%. Right. And they're trying to steal right. less. Um, well, it just so happens having a bearer asset that you can hold in your mind to the tune of an unlimited amount of value, essentially, um, and that you can carry on your person and exist anywhere in the world all at the exact same time, which means there's not even a bandwidth constraint at all. It's purely by the value of the network is exactly what you need to lower that cost of exit. Um, and you could even exit within the system in the sense that you could privately hold an amount of capital that the a tyrant isn't even aware of which means that if your governance system isn't serving you you have the ability to exit and not provide your capital to it such that you can bleed it until it does serve you 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 can you can remove your value from the system it's how do we make governments relationship to the people a service provider and customer relationship if Walmart ever cheats me, I just don't go to Walmart. Like everybody just wants things to work. Nobody wants to burn the whole world down. And for the one out of a thousand people who want to burn the whole world down, it's usually because they've just gotten a like cheated. They feel like they have absolutely no control over anything. And it's usually because of the system that we have that takes all of their control and all of their rights away from them. Um, it's, it, it's not a coincidence that people become more violent and social cohesion uh, breaks down and people kind of become pieces of crap under tyrannical systems where the government just kind of runs everything. It's because people feel hopeless. People feel out of control. Like they don't have any say over what happens in their life. They just kind of get their payout and that's the best that they can do. Um, and if they if they provide more for their family or they try to come up with better ideas or they try to do better or they try to work harder, doesn't matter. You just get you just get your stipend. Um, so why do anything? Um, it destroys the human spirit and then it makes all of those people who just want to see the world burn. Um, but generally, you don't go into grocery stores and punch any, anybody, not because you think you're going to get shot by the police, but just because you don't want to do it. It's not nice. <laughs> um, Speak for yourself, guy. I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so in that sense, the, the idea is how do you create technology in such a way that value can be protected Outside of government approval, um, such that the government must be providing you a valuable service so that it's worth the price. Because um, otherwise, okay. there's no way okay. to determine if it is. Cool, cool, cool. All right. That was that was awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we kind of persisted down that rabbit hole because I think that, that um, is actually a really key part for the key part of this i didn't have it down as my like as my <laughs> questions but i'm glad that we went into that history because i do think that that's like really really important to all of this stuff okay mm -hmm. so i'm gonna start getting into some into some edge cases to kind of like test the, like libertarian philosophy and stuff because as i said to you before there's one of your episodes and i will try to remember to link to it in the description which was mm -hmm. talking about um healthcare and it was actually kind of talking more generally about rights 
but it, specifically, healthcare kind of is just a good example of, because yeah, healthcare being a good example, and you kind of articulated why this idea, which is held by a lot of people, and especially in the UK, where you know a significant part of my audience is, which is that you know like healthcare is this thing which should be provided by governments, and if it's not, then it's some kind of evil backwards society. So I want to go into like healthcare specifically, but just before I do that. What do you consider to be a right? Because I think we ought to just first of all like lay down what a right is, and then we can go into whether healthcare can be considered a right, and if not, what are the ramifications? So first of all, what is a right in your view? All right, I think there's two things to address here. First is um, the the language of a right is abused quite regularly, and for understandable reasons um so i don't mean it like abused like everybody's like malicious about it um uh in for things that have nothing to do with rights um and it's critical that we understand the difference between a need a want and a right because a right is an very explicit thing and we have no other language for it there's a lot of things that we have for i need this or i i strongly desire this this is necessary in order like we have lots of ways to describe and define those things but rights are very explicit. We have no alternative word. Like we must understand what a right is. So a right is something that you naturally have and that other people are morally obligated to not take from you. It is not something that you need or want or that anybody else is obligated to give to you. Rights are negative, not positive. You don't have a right to a wage. You have a right to work with who you agree to work with as long as they agree as well. Um, so in the context of a right, all of your rights can essentially be defined by saying, what do you have if you're naked in the woods by yourself? You own yourself, you own your body. Nobody could possibly have a higher claim to your body. You're, they don't experience your pain. They don't experience your emotion. They don't, they don't have your dreams. They don't think in your head. They don't move your arm when they try to move, when they think I'm going to move my arm. Um, so Obviously, they own their body more than you have any claim over theirs. Um, and that simple reality, you can actually derive almost the entirety of moral principles from that simple reality. You own you and I own me. Um, I own my goals, what I want to do with my time. I have the freedom to speak my mind and hold my opinion, no matter who it offends or uh, who it pleases, doesn't matter. Um, and uh, I have you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? I own me. Um, <clears throat> and then anything in uh, – property is essentially an extension of that. Uh, but the one thing we do not have a right to is encroach on someone else's. So rights must by definition be universal. I don't have it if you don't have it. Like if you don't, if you don't own yourself, well then how, by, what, by what argument do I own? Like who owns you more than you? You know, like I'm saying, I'm saying that not only do like if let's say that I control 20% of your time or 50% of your time and you do not consent to this, uh, you're, you're my little micro slave, um, that, uh, what I'm saying is that despite the fact that you live your experience, you live the consequences of your decisions and what you do with your time. And you are the only one that can survive or not based on the resources that you agree to trade or make or create, whatever it is. Not only do you not own it, but my, me from a distance who has no control over any of it, doesn't experience any of it, pays none of the consequences. 
I not only own all of mine, but I own yours as well. So it's it's to say the right is either universal or it just doesn't exist, which means that you cannot have an obligation to something. You, I cannot okay. possibly claim that I have a right to a car because that means that someone else doesn't even have the right to their life because they must provide me some yeah. some way with a car. It, it takes a lot of work to build a car. It takes a whole lot of ingenuity. It takes a whole lot of innovation. It takes a whole lot of energy. It takes lives, millions of lives stacked over time, iterating on all sorts of technology and gears and systems and everything to build a car. How could you possibly have a right to something that literally takes 200 years, 500 years worth of technological development to even imagine in the first place? Um, so that's not a right. You might, we might want it. We might need it for day-to-day -day life. It might be, make everything so much easier that it's absolutely critical. But that doesn't make it a right. That simply means that we want to do everything we can to make sure that we have it and we can sustainably provide it to people. Very different from having a right. So okay. that's kind of the foundation. Okay, great, great, great. So let's give uh, an example here because, you know, obviously there is a, a, di a big difference now and a lot of people claim something is a right, which you and I would probably uh, like agree is not a right. And some of those things sound... Uh, might sound callous or might sound like, what, you, you don't think that's right? You know, like um, like healthcare or something like that. But I'm going to give like a real edge case example here. And I do, this is just something I've been thinking. I do have questions here from some of my friends and some of my, like my listeners as well. So I want to go mm -hmm. into those and mainly they're around healthcare. But just before I get into the healthcare stuff, let's um, take an example of something that someone would say is a right, like clean water. You know, someone would say, you have a, mm -hmm. everyone, everyone has a right to clean water. This is a universal human right or whatever. And you might say, well, you have the right to trade for clean water, right? You have the right to, you know, if, if someone has clean water and you don't have mm -hmm. immediate access to it, you have the right to pay the money. You have the right to, you know, do something for them, whether you're bartering for it or you're giving them money or whatever it is. You have the you right, have the right to, to take to dirty water and clean it yourself. You have the, <laughs> Nobody exactly, should be exactly. able to get in the way of that. Yeah. But let's, let's go with just an extreme example, just to test the logic for a minute. Let's say that someone is living in, in a location and all they have is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a drought. Um, six months of the year and all they have is a big lake which everyone uses for the water and someone has basically said i'm going to just ring fence off this entire lake this is my property i've built a huge wall i found it before anyone else i own this lake this is my property this kind of goes into the the property rights idea and then someone else who happens to be born in that area says okay well i'd like some water please you know i i'm gonna i'm willing to do whatever i'll, I'll work for the water i'll pay you for the water whatever it is and that person says no, I'm going to deny you the water. Like, there's nothing you can give me. I won't accept a million dollars for this. I don't. I won't accept any amount of labor. I've determined that you're not going to have the water. Now, I'm not. They're not killing that person. They're not going and saying, you know, I'm going to actively kill you. I'm not committing an actual violence against you in that sense. I'm just denying. I'm denying whatever you want to give me. I'm denying any amount of money to give you water from this lake. Do you think in that situation that that person is violating the right of the person who wants to buy it by doing that? Are they essentially murdering them? Or does the property right come over and above that? And you say, well, no, that's, a, you know, it's their property. They have the right to deny it. How do you deal with it? Obviously, this example is completely hypothetical and it's unlikely to ever happen. But mm -hmm. just to test the logic itself, how, how do you deal with that kind of situation? I would say it's important to go one step deeper before we get to the hypothetical. So to understand, particularly when we're talking about like what we want or what is desirable, is healthcare is a great example is that the idea is not that I think to say that something isn't a right 
is to immediately, um, uh, for a lot of people at least, is to assume is like, oh, well, you just want people to die of drought. You, you, you just want people to die of disease or whatever. When that's the exact opposite of the goal. The goal always yeah. is to provide as many people with this thing sustainably for the long, like forever. How do we set up a structure, an incentive structure, that makes this available to the most people in the best way for the lowest cost? 100%, that's the goal. The goal is to give everybody. How does everyone get good health care? So it's critically important that this is the goal. The thing is, is that the incentive structure applied or created through basic property rights, through basic human rights and incentives, is vastly better at providing that to as many people as possible than to monopolize it. What you were talking about is a government, a government that monopolizes it and then tells people who can and cannot control it. But it's not a government in the sense that they are extorting someone. They're actually not accepting anything from that person. They're not going and saying, hey, you've got to pay me you know, some kind of rent to use my lake. They're basically just saying, it's my lake and I don't care the fact you can't get water elsewhere. I refuse to give it to you. Like in that example, I find it hard to argue that I find it hard to argue that either, for me, either that person is committing a murder by denying the person uh, access to the lake. Right. There's three options. Either they're committing a murder by denying the person access or you say, well, we need a government to ensure that the monopoly cannot persist, that we need something to break up the monopoly, i.e. something sitting above above the, the corporation itself, i.e. a government or uh, I'm, I'm kind of. Uh, forgetting now the third option. The third option is, oh, I'm blanking, I'm blanking. But yeah, so either a government uh, needs to exist. A government should break that it up. That person's committing a crime or, sorry, yeah, I remember the third option. Or the third option is that you is that you say that the water is a human right, uh, that, that you actually include that within rights because you say, well, you know what, like we can't live without it, so it is a human right. So for me, it kind of tr trends towards one of those three things, which seems to under undermine the libertarian principle on it. But yeah, I I'm interested to know your thoughts about like where you go with that. I would say the reason that the third option is not an option or, or not a sustainable option is because inevitably what you end up doing is changing the monopoly who owns it. Um, and yeah, we, we actually see this in, you say, I want to own the monopoly rather than this person who I think is evil or is not letting me have the water, but it still just means that the violent institution is in control of who gets what. Um, and you again, it's just hoping that your violent institution is in charge of it or, or your restrictive institution and not someone else's. Um, so you're not changing the structure. That's the problem. And the structure is what we need to change. Um, yeah, one, one second on that one, guy, because yeah. I, I I agree with you, but then at the I want to give an example of in real life, it just okay, just yeah. to, you, you fin this finish happens. your finish your this, point, and then this yeah, happens. Like giant corporations yeah. will come into like Africa, or whatever, make deals with governments, and they'll buy up yeah. all the available resources or all the available water. One of it is that the community is not actually selling it to them. So this is something that you see in real in the real world is that the community is denied the option. Um, and then there's another predatory means by which the IMF does this. Again, we're all almost universally. These sort of things arise and monopolies are extremely hard to make sustainable without a violent monopoly enforcing it. Essentially, without government approval, they don't work at length. Um, they almost always collapse under their own weight. 
Um, and uh, the example in Africa of exactly this scenario, of exactly them coming in, buying up all the water resources, is that the individual people are not selling it to them. The individual people are having it confiscated by a totalitarian government, by a dictate, dictatorial regime, and then the government sells it to the corporation. Um, so there is – the tyranny is the problem that makes such a resource so easy to control. And the thing is, is that there's almost universally – optionality. There's never really one source of a resource, particularly not a need like food, water or shelter. There's there's a million ways to get it. The thing is, is the government comes down and comes in and destroys alternative ways to do it. Like they were um, uh, people were doing uh, uh, local drilling into wells of exactly an area like this in which um, the water had been the, the major water resources and the major wells had been completely confiscated by the government, sold to a bunch of big corporations. And those those giant monopolistic institutions, the giant corporations love dictatorial governments. Our government and the IMF love dictatorial governments because then they can do their big plans and their subsidies. They It's hard to work with somebody that has to get approval from the community. That's, in, that's insanely difficult. They don't want to sell their their rice farm to a corn farm. They, they want to make rice. They need it confiscated. So and th this is a it's called structural adjustment. I highly, highly recommend the this is an IMF literal fraudulent system that uses the money printer, uses the debt creation system to enslave the developing world. And it's absolutely horrific to look at the amount of capital that has come out of the developing world into the developed world because of this debt structure, because of this monetary structure. Um, uh, but the, the thing is, is the, the local citizens were putting in new wells. They were digging their own wells and putting in their stuff and the government, the corporations were complaining and the government would come in and pour cement into the wells. Every single time somebody tried to come up with an alternative way, um, there are systems that, that will literally pull water out of the air. They'll, they'll, um, it's basically like an air conditioning thing that will pull water out of the water vapor in the air so that you can provide clean drinking water. And mm -hmm. Anytime somebody like set this stuff up, like, again, a violent structure, a violent system is coming in and basically shutting down these people's capacity to do it. And they always they always have a good excuse. They always have, oh, well, your well is the big corporation. Well, is is like the properly regulated well. But your well is poisoning is, is bad for the well. So we're going to pour cement in it, which is like a horrific point. We're going to like, like this. The mo this is so much worse to pour cement into a well to lock it in the amount of like toxins in cement that would go that would now seep into the water that are like co constantly running on a, a literal column like all the way down to the water table it, again it's always a facade right is that how do we how do we establish a law where we can we can get control so going back to let's let's deal with more in the actual restriction of our example um is that not only is it insanely difficult for that situation to arise, but mm. this is where the power of exit comes in. It's so critically important because the and the power of alternatives of, of having an available alternative. And the only way to make those alternative systems and the ability to exit as great of capacity as possible is to have a clear and structured system of rights. Now, in the most local community. That's where I think there's one community and there's there's one well in the local community. That's why I say socialist at the community level. If it's someone right. you know you're dealing with, it's your cousin for crying out loud. Like, you know, it's, it's your neighbor down the street. I think there is an absolutely fair 
place of gray area, so to speak. Um, it's not one that I think should undermine the the fundamental system of rights, but where practicality is at least something worth considering, like like for maybe an example of like kind of the optionality thing is that let's say there's 90 people in a community or 99 people in a community, right? One person controls this one water resource and he only gives it to 95 people because four people are don't hold the right opinion. Four people keep criticizing him, right? Um, Well, then uh, the first thing I would say is that it's on the other 95 to to reprovide the water, (laughs) like to provide a water resource to the rest of the community. And then if this keeps cascading down to the point that nobody is allowed to get water, um, well, then fuck you 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 come again like the more local you get the more gray area it gets but yeah um at a certain point maybe if it's on a local level you say well it's the freedom of optionality are, is being taken yeah the freedom of optionality essentially at some point on a very small scale probably below dunbar's number is gonna mm-hmm. is gonna take a natural precedence over property rights at a certain point because otherwise it kind of leads to some absurdities Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Th- that's kind of how I've come to it as well. That's how kind of how I've come to it. So, yeah, I mean, not necessarily thinking a- about it on the scales as, as you as you've kind of pointed out here. So, this is definitely a good way to think about it in terms of and just I'll, having a different approach based on scale. Yeah, a different approach based on scale is a critically important way to think about it. Um, and I would also make sh- think about it in which system is going to produce this result more often than others. Because we are talking about an incredibly hypothetical, super yeah. crazy edge case, Absolutely. right? Yeah. But this isn't an edge case when we're talking about governments. This no. is the norm through the developing world. This is all, yeah. all the time. It's an edge case when we're talking about free markets. It's yes. very, 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 very hard to sustain such an absurd situation in a free market where everybody has the freedom to, to move around, to have optionality. So as soon as you say... We're going to undermine the fundamental rights, the fundamental structure of rights in order to prevent this reality. What you've actually done is fucked with the incentive so badly that this is going to occur much, much more often. So you have one hypothetical case that you're trying to prevent and you have now 20 practical cases of this actually happening and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, establishing an explicit monopoly of violence to prevent an implicit hypothetical monopoly of violence isn't the solution because – the rights are the most important thing to guarantee that that access is still available. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing I was going to say as well before, just as that distinction, it's not necessarily, um, only that, oh, well, governments, you know, can also be the monopolistic power and they can invite corporations and they can kind of do deals and become a mafia of their own. But you could even say, cause some people might say, oh, well, you know, you're talking about these two extreme examples, but you know, I'm talking about a world like, you know, uh, UK or Canada or the United States where, you know, we have access and generally in many places you have free access to water, but you know, there's no monopoly, there's no extortion, but it's like, well, there is still extortion. You're just not necessarily privy to it because people Mm -hmm. are still having to pay taxes as a compulsory matter. Like they can't escape it. They can't say no. If they say no, they go to jail. And yes, you could say, oh, well, they're getting a service from it. They're getting water, but it's like, well, you know, I can't go and force someone to 
buy the a batch of bread that I've just baked. I can't go to them and bug under their head and say, "Well, you've got to buy this." It's you know, you, you want the bread, don't you? You got to you got to buy it. Like mm-hmm. only the government has that ability. So even in a, in a in a kind of non-extreme example of a kind of Western nation where you say, "Oh well, you know, free access to to clean water, etc., universally," well, there is still under the surface there. You still have a system of kind of taxation which you're not able to say no to. So there is still a non-consensual action happening. You might think that it's morally okay. You might think it's morally passable, but there is still a non-consensual transaction happening at the root of that, right? Yeah. And thinking that because because you agree and you're participating, or I agree to something and I'm participating, that that means it's voluntary because I'm I'm simply disagreeing with the fact that someone should disagree. But if someone does disagree, they're still being forced to participate. They're not given the option of exiting. And what's crazy is like we think about like, oh, it's not really a monopoly. It's like a totally mutual relationship. And, you know, they're a service provider and we're paying for that service. That's not the case at all. Um, And there's a lot of cases of the government um, being insanely vicious about people finding alternatives. Uh, Like, for example, um, my brother is uh, trying to finish up a house. He doesn't have the right. They, They he he's not allowed to not plug into the city water or the the county water whatever whatever it is in his area um and same with power he's not allowed to generate his own power and this these are not idle threats they will literally come and take your stuff or they'll confiscate the house there's a um numerous stories of people uh collecting rainwater and filtering their own water and not being yeah. plugged into it who have That's it crazy. ripped from their house who are arrested and fined for this like that is any excuse saying that like, oh, this monopoly is totally fine because I'm in agreement with him with them is saying that it's OK to destroy that person's life over the fact that they collected rainwater mm-hmm. over causing years of pain and destroying their property so that they have to recover. They don't have the right to optionality. The only thing that you do have the right to is to get water if you can get it. It's rain. It's rain for crying out loud. It falls on your property. You should have absolutely 100% right, even if it's dirty or whatever. You want to drink dirty water? Go to town. Everybody else is going out and getting fucking wasted off of vodka. They're drinking literal poison so that they can be stupid for two hours, you know? Like, the, the idea that I could not, that I have to ask permission to have rainwater? Like, to, to simultaneously think everyone has a right to water, but that that we can just kind of excuse or not think about the fact that the government will literally take water that you have obtained naturally and without hurting anyone or stepping on anyone's toes or getting in anybody's way to live their life the way they want it is those are polar opposites that's the opposite of the right to water that's the right only to be attached to the monopolistic system that dominates water that is that hypothetical that we just talked about that is that is dominance of the water system and giving everybody just a good enough price that they can have a, an above market profit, that they can have control, that they can they can make sure that those four people who keep disagreeing with them and criticizing them publicly can have that taken away from them, can be targeted in some specific way um, because th- there's no prof- there's no there's no value in not being a part of society. And but if you can control it. And you can just slightly eke out more and take the control selectively. Most people will just kind of turn the other cheek. Most people just kind of look away and be like, no, I agree to this. I want the water. 
I just want to take a quick break here to remind you about supporting the podcast on the Fountain app. If you haven't heard of Fountain before, Fountain is an awesome podcast app which you can get on both iOS and Android. You can get all episodes of the Staying Free podcast on the Fountain app. And this is also a place where you can say thanks by giving some stats with a comment. So this is called a boost on the Fountain app and this is all part of the value for value concept. So if you're getting value from this podcast, send me a boost there with a comment and I will read it on the next show. It's super easy to get started on Fountain. Just download the app and you can top up your Fountain wallet either by sending Bitcoin on the Lightning Network or even just by using a bank card. And it's also worth mentioning you can also earn stats by listening to Fountain and being an active member of the community. So if you want to find out more, you can go to fountain.fm. But otherwise, just go into the App Store, download the app now and start using Fountain and getting involved with the value for value community. Any way that you guys can support me is hugely appreciated, but I'm especially trying to push Fountain right now because I definitely see value for value as a future of podcasting and one of the best ways to support content creators. All right, let's get back to the episode. Okay, Guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start rattling through quite i've still got quite quite a few few things to go into <laughs> Sorry. and no, no no it's it's fine this is like really interesting and i love talking about this stuff um but i want to try and get through as many of these questions as i can so they might be mm-hmm. a little bit like uh, not particularly well threaded together but i'm just going to hit you with them and and get your thoughts on them so yeah like i said to you before like i've got a couple of friends who you know i'm they're somewhat libertarian some of their their thinking but they still mm-hmm. kind of compared to me they're still very much they they don't really believe that it's ne- that it's kind of like necessarily feasible or necessarily kind of moral and moral co- kind of morality comes into this a bit so um i'll just start firing the questions off so my friend says basically like if you're in a libertarian world right you you are going to have people who um necessarily have more and necessarily have less and without a government kind of there to always backstop the people who have less without a government there to say okay well, we're going to provide a basic level of health care to people who are you know uh, particularly poor who are kind of like in abject poverty etc in the absence of, of that system there's still going to be people who are poor you might say well you know everyone will overall be more wealthy because you're not going to have all of this kind of like you know expenditure on on inefficiency etc so maybe everyone will be overall a richer state, but there's still going to be poverty. There's still going to be things that people can't afford. You know, for instance, like expensive health, uh, cancer care, or something like that. There's still going to be some things which just which just mm-hmm. are going to be unaffordable, and you no longer have a government to basically put the gun to everyone else in society's head and say, "Look, you need to cough up because this person needs care." Which you know, you might say that's a good thing, and some people will say, you know, well, it's immoral, it's theft, and other people would say, well. No, actually, it's it's a good thing. That's what the government should be doing. They should be helping the the people, ensuring that people who are uh, in abject poverty still have a chance in, in in the world, right? So, anyway, that's just a prelude to to the question, which is if the libertarian argument of um, kind of charity and voluntary voluntary action, right, which is going to be a necessary component, you're going to say, well, you know, people, we're still going to look after those people, but it's going to be on a voluntary basis. I mean, I don't want to put m- words in your mouth here, but most libertarian thought tends to be in the area of saying well we're not just going to forget about people we're not just going to let people die on the street but there's going to be you know it's going, there's going to be a moral obligation there somewhere to provide charity to provide you know voluntarily to, to help these people people who have more have a moral obligation to help people who have less but it should be done on a voluntary basis that's normally the way that it's phrased and his question is isn't that kind of um way of thinking in the libertarian world isn't that similar to the kind of marxist way of thinking which is that oh well there'll still be productivity under communism you know that essentially kind of both sides are making a claim which is somewhat unprovable the marxists are saying oh well you know even if we don't own anything you know and it's all kind of like share you know um even if there's no property rights we'll still be productive isn't that a similar argument as, as the as the libertarian saying well 
even without a government, we would still be charitable and we would still help the poor. Like, are these, is it, is it a provable thing? Can, can we prove it in any kind of, um, of a, a real way to say this is how society is going to go? And obviously, if you disagree with the way that I've kind of phrased it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of the way I'm seeing it. Yeah, no, I, I get the framing and it's, it's at least the kind of popular conception of it. And there's one thing to, to point out kind of as a precursor to, to getting into the, the framing is that libertarianism isn't a judgment of some way of doing things or a culture of any specific kind or, you know, the, the idea that like you should be allowed to put whatever you want in your body is not does not it in even the slightest. And by the way, non-libertarians, liberals, conservatives, and libertarians make this mistake. Um, is that this does not mean that I have to be happy that someone is walking down the sidewalk shooting up heroin while I'm walking by with my kids. It just means that I'm not allowed to shoot them when I see it, that I'm not allowed to beat them. Like it's the explicit moral foundation of libertarianism is and only is at what, where is the threshold in which violence, initiating violence against a peaceful person is acceptable in society? That's the line. And there is no, there is, we have got to get out of this thinking that because we want something really bad, which is always an subjective thing that where the goalposts move. There's no clear way to define this. There's no clear edges to put on it. The best we can do is define initiation of violence and rights. That's the, that's the best and best possible case that we have. As soon as we start thinking that because we want something from someone else, we can be violent over it. Going back to that kind of initial idea of just a feedback loop in the wrong direction, um, we build a giant structure of violence to just take whatever we want from society. We're, we're just increasingly building this structure outside of voluntary interaction. You can't police niceness. You can't police ethics. You can't say that, oh, you should do something for someone else because you take all of the meaning out of it. You know, being nice is... Or, or sharing something with someone is only meaningful and is only actually sharing if you do it voluntarily. Otherwise, if someone feels obligated to do it, I mean, not obligated, if someone is being forced to do it, they're more likely to resent the other person that they wouldn't have resented otherwise. You destroy the fabric of community. You destroy that personal human relationship that rather than me deciding to actually help you, um, because I have extra and you at this point in your life, whether it's because of how old you are or where you are between jobs or the structure of like your skill set or the economy, whatever it is, that other people might actually be want to be a part of the community and feel the desire to help you. But if they're stolen from to help you, they're going to hate you. They're going to resent you. It's just going to put it just makes every new person in society a parasite to all the other people and it destroys the very fabric of why we fucking care about each other in the first place it puts each other at odds it means that it, it, it's exactly what creates this sort of class warfare so the underlying incentives you can't police niceness you just can't do it um violence is worse than being mean you know like be, like forcing someone into something that they do not consent to rape is worse than 
you know, a hug. <laughs> like it just, it just like, like you, you have to fundamentally put these hierarchies in order and to, to absolve them in or, or to excuse them or completely throw away the underlying structure that creates abundance in the first place. What we want is abundance. Healthcare is an insanely costly thing. The reason it's hard to give every single person who has cancer expensive cancer treatment is because cancer treatment takes an enormous amount of labor, time, energy, technology. Like it takes thousands of people's lives cooperating together voluntarily in order to create the structure to cure, to, uh, to treat cancer. It's a huge, difficult apparatus to provide to people. If you undermine the system that allows them to voluntary, voluntarily trade so that you can have this giant, complex production process where the end result is helping people, um, uh, helping people survive in the case of cancer, well, then it doesn't matter how many people you guarantee cancer for. More people will die from cancer. The point is, how do we get as few people dying from cancer as possible? How do we make sure everyone has as much as we can? The best that we can do is set up an incentive structure that encourages abundance, innovation, and growth so that the people in the poorest in society aren't just left to their own devices. It is abundance that allows us to share. Nobody gives a shit about the homeless person down the street if they are barely making ends meet and they can't even put food on their table. Nobody's going to get a donation. Nobody's going to get charity. When, when you undermine the incentive structure that allows this thing, and again, it works temporarily. It works temporarily. You're, we're talking about 100-year trends, essentially, for the kind of the four-generational theory, right? Um, and so one of the, one of the worst things about, uh, creating a monopoly, um, creating a structure where the government pays for something, uh, is that it works. The early results are fantastic generally, but what you end up doing is that you freeze the incumbents and the structure of the healthcare or the communication system, whatever you monopolize, you freeze the structure in time so that. You cannot move like imagine if the cable companies in order to give everybody informed media, the cable companies were monopolized and they controlled the entire communication system in 1985, just before the Internet came about. The Internet would never have happened. They would never have allowed it. It would have just been roped into the cable structure and they'd be running whatever whatever extremely limited two way communication they allowed. And they would have called it innovation. They would have said it had been great. But structural, fundamental structural changes are essentially halted forever because you freeze the incumbents as the powers of the thing. And everybody has this kind of natural authority of this this inherent thing that when somebody undermines the way they do something, they kind of feel like they want to gatekeep. Right. Like. Like just like seeing somebody else in Bitcoin doing a, uh, uh, I'm going to read Bitcoin articles or whatever on their show. There's this natural tendency in my head to to be this. Uh, well, that's my thing. That's my thing, yeah. and I have to just, like shut that asshole up, right? Like I'm like that. Fucking, I don't control this. I don't own the idea of reading articles out loud. But like, I, you know, like there's there's only so much. I, I'm human, right? I'm going to get that little tinge of stuff, and I have to fight it back. And I literally send them a message, like, dude, I'll retweet your shit. You know, like I have to kind of temper the the little inner tyrant in me to recognize that I have to respect yeah. them as a human being. They have the right to do this. I don't own shit. Like I'm no, I'm not special. And, but imagine if you, you know, uh, a government monopolized the, the reading of articles under my institution, I would, you wouldn't let, I would have this, this idea that 
I'm I'm just the I'm the czar of, you know, reading articles and nobody else would be able to run that podcast unless I owned it. Right. Um, yeah. And but I mean, it's, it's by default illegal when you create that government system. And I think that's, you know, again, 10, 20 years, maybe it works. 30 years gets a little bit strained. The incentives start to kind of be undermined. Costs start going up. Taxes have to go up enormously. And then it just it starts to to cascade like Canada, you know, the largest, the, the, um, uh, uh, the greatest cause of death in like the last two years was euthanasia. Was it? Oh my God. Euthanasia. They're literally killing patients to, to absolve them of their pain. That's not abundance. That's not giving people treatment. And the longer you go, the more it devolves into that because you've undermined the reason people cooperate in the first place is that you treat another person like a human, which I know is the argument, right? We want to treat them like human. We don't want the poor person to be left on the side of the street. But the best thing to do is to create enormous amount of market abundance so that people care, so that people know that there is extra. You're not going to get that with a, a government monopoly and the longer you go – the, the faster you just end up and the more control you have over it, the faster you end up towards collapse. And a great example is the U.S. healthcare system. We have this weird like um, claim that it's like a free market system that Republicans just like cheer it on. It's like we have the greatest innovation, free market healthcare. And then, you know, people with you know, people in Canada and the U.K. will look at it. And it's like, see, this is how terrible the free market is. Evil corporations. We don't have anything close to a free market in healthcare. We have this crazy, bizarre amalgamation of like part communism, part socialism and like only free market profits. Like like they can keep their profits, but like socialized costs is pretty much the same thing we have to do with the financial system. But more than 70 cent of every single dollar is either directly or indirectly controlled and paid for by the government in the United States. We just have a really bad incentive structure of a monopolistic system. And to even offer – Yes, I think it's the worst of both incentives. I think it's the worst of both incentives. So a single-payer system is actually preferable to what we have. It's still on a long-term scale. It collapses and it's it's bad. But what we have is a is essentially a centralized um, structure of who is allowed to do what. A government-enforced insurance system that uh, basically gatekeeps on what institutions are even allowed to do it. And if you're holistic or carnivore or keto or um, uh, don't – you basically want to work outside of the system, you know. You know, you, you're, you're aware of insanely how gatekept and siloed the system is because you can't get insurance for holistic care. You can't get, you can't get anybody, uh, you can't get insurance to pay for um, preventative treatment. Everything is designed around the hospitals and the major conglomerates to rope and trap people into that system. And the overwhelming majority of the money comes straight from the government. Every single time. Um, is there a, a healthcare system in the world that is private you would advocate over the American healthcare system? Or is America the most privatized of any? Um, Jesus. Because um, I'd be interested to know if anyone's tried and done it, you know? I don't know other... America in like previous to like 1907 <laughs> um, had the closest right. thing to a, a, a genuinely free market healthcare system as we ever had. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. funny, we have like the silly idea that, um, it's when everybody was drinking like snake oil and like weird poisons or whatever. It's like, 
man, take a look at the health of this country right now. Like, that's what we have now. Like, that's what we have. We have a freaking opioid crisis of historic proportions. We have people like 70 to 80 percent of everyone is on like some pharmaceutical drug. Yeah. I mean, the, the results of our busted incentives. And I think it's important to remember that the incentive structure isn't simply is it free or is it government? There's there's this giant middle ground of is the how is it incentivized? Where are costs? Where are profits? Like all of these things. The free market only works and only actually exists if risk and reward is fully and totally present for the for the the players of the system. Is if I risk, I lose. It's profit and loss. It's optionality for my customers. They do not, nobody is tied to me. Nobody is, uh, you know, removed. Like we have, we have certificate, I guess I can't. We have certificate of needs laws where the hospitals in an area get to vote on whether a new hospital gets to come in and compete. I shit you not. What the fuck about a free market is that? Imagine if McDonald's and Burger King could decide whether or not five guys could set up shop in the same shopping center. Do they just, oddly enough, they always vote to not like the fuck, the fuck are you kidding me? Like, and this is the, this is the consequences of undermining the incentive structure of undermining the basic rights. You always have to go lower. And I get, I get that the goal and please, Jesus, don't think that I'm not, I want everyone to have healthcare. That's exactly what I want. But I don't want to be disillusioned and think that we can just hand wave it away and put a gun into somebody's hand and say, now everyone has health care. That's not healthy. That's not responsible. That's not nuanced. That's not how the world works. That's how you make a problem with someone with a gun that's just telling everybody else what to do. Um, and they're going to make it look like it works for long enough. And maybe they even have good intentions at the beginning. I, if you put me in charge of it, I would have good intentions. Everybody wants to be king. Everybody wants to fix society. But at the end of the day, to fix society in that way, you have to shut down everybody who wants to do it differently than you. Mm-hmm. And the only mechanism you have is to go out and beat the shit out of them and put them in a cage. And so that becomes the structure. And those fundamental systems, when you, when you lock those incumbents into the system – Like that's uh, another great example is the nutritional recommendations is our regulatory system is so locked down. It's so structured and so convoluted that we've known for 20 to 30 years. There's been ample studies that show that our the food pyramid is garbage, absolute garbage. Like it's not even close to what we should eat for being healthy. I guess that's where you get the corporations involved and stuff as well. Like you get corporations like involved that. because it's really easy when there's just a couple of incumbents to control, when there's just a boardroom of yeah. politicians to focus on rather than millions of customers to please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another thing is this kind of comes back to the idea that just the, just the fact that you have um, a state existing doesn't necessarily mean that there's no corporate incentives there because all that happens is that the corporate incentives work their way into government and the government becomes the enforcer of them because you've anointed the government with the ability to enforce these things. So now you've got this powerful entity which you entrusted with you know, combating corporate force or whatever, which, as you said, and you use these examples in places like Africa and stuff where they're doing it with the water, is that the government ends up being the enforcing arm of the corporations, right? So I think that that actually kind of like explains a lot of um, 
I think that comes down to it. That That is a, how do I phrase this? When you think about these issues, you've all, always got to be aware of that. Because I think a lot of the kind of like more liberal thinking on these matters is, oh, well, you need the government. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have this essentially corporations that are just kind of going to be these monopolizing forces or that they're going to, you know, they're going to be the the strong, you know, whoever has the most money wins or whatever. But actually what ends up happening is that it's still whoever has the most money wins. But now you've anointed a, another organization called government to not only do the bidding of the corporations anyway, because they're the ones who have the power to do it. But you've also allowed them to directly go and extort from the people in the form of taxation and say, well, mm-hmm. we're going to come and take your money now. And you've enabled them to do things like print the money. So at the end of the day, I think that all of the arguments that end up saying, oh, well, you know, government goods, you know, otherwise corporate greed, you know, that those exact same arguments could, you could just say, well, why wouldn't the government be um, subject to the exact same incentives and be corrupted by them? And therefore, you've just given another organization actual monopolistic power you've given them you know mm-hmm. not only is it it's no longer theoretical it's no longer you know will there be a monopoly of this corporation doing its thing you've said you've no, said I'm going to directly I'm going to guarantee the monopoly and I'm going to hope yeah. the monopoly does the will of the cares people. about me and yeah, cares cares about by me. me yeah and actually what we end up experiencing in the world is that that's not the case at all I would also rec- or consider two things in this well first actually um uh I remember and I just looked it up in my notes because I was trying to figure out I have like a set of links. It's like a bajillion long on a lot of these sort of topics. Um, But um, I remember I said um, that euthanasia is the leading cause of death in Canada. And it's it's broken into a leading cause. It's like in the top subset or something like that. Um, So I want to make sure. And actually, it's, it's fun to actually get things like that wrong because the people who vehemently disagree with you will go actually look it up and find the statistic or whatever they'll tell you so it's the fifth and it's like well okay good um and <laughs> yeah. i'm sorry for being wrong but it's the fifth leading cause of death you know so um just a, just a caveat there that, that, that is a misspeak um fair enough it just popped in my head i was like wait i, I said that wrong but uh, okay. uh going back to the idea of corporations a corporation is a legal entity a corporation in the exceptions that it is provided in the law and the idea that the corporation itself is treated like a human is, is treated like a person is, is a, is a construction of government. Yeah. Yeah. It's only because of the monopoly of government that they have these special rules. Otherwise it's a contract between voluntary people. So the, the very structure and the nature of corporations, we very, very different. If we did not have the government creating these, um, specialized legal entities to the benefit of an organization at the cost of the individual involved. Um, so again, you start to undermine the incentive structure, you get tons of externalities of, of unintended consequences, the further and further you go down the road. Now, not to say that there wouldn't be legal agreements for organizations, of course, there would. Um, but they would just be explicit contracts, right? Is it like, like we have uh, a contract with very simple details. I have a contract with my sponsors, very simple details. And we're, you know, like we have lots of variability in the fact that like, we know they, they control their side of it or whatever. We can voluntarily exit this contract at any time, you know, sort of thing. But that doesn't mean that we didn't set up an arrangement so that we have something to fall back on because it's easy to agree to something when things are going great. It's really hard to keep that in line when things are shitty. Like, so how do we avoid conflict between each other? The whole purpose is how do we have as little violence as possible and as much abundance as possible? And at the end of the day, it's adhering to 
human rights to the basic rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and fundamental property so that trade can occur, society can flourish, and we can actually cooperate to meet our ends. And every single time that is undermined, it might, the trade-off might not be easy to see. It might not, it might not even seem like that big of a deal for the short term or the midterm. But ultimately, we see the, out, the outcome is the same over and over and over and over again. When you create a fundamental violent monopoly that can't be exited from in place of the potential or the, the short-term I can get out of it monopoly um, or I do have the option sort of monopoly, you just end up with essentially that same sort of person in charge of the other because that's, th that's what those people want. Um, and they, yeah. and more specifically is the, the least ethical person is the one who gets the furthest because they're the ones who don't give a shit about lying to people and telling them what they want to hear to get votes. You know, if, if we could tell which person was a bad person and which person was a good person just by looking at them or talking to them, we wouldn't need any of this anyway. We'd just be able to, we'd just be able to run things completely on our own. We don't, we don't know. We don't know who's a murderer. We don't know who's a corrupt piece of crap. So the idea that we can just listen to somebody talk and that they're the, the person who's most like being told the truth is usually uncomfortable. You know, like if I told you just like the right to not be offended or something, right? Like, let's say you're an alcoholic and I call you an alcoholic. I say, listen, listen, Johnny, you're an alcoholic. You're going to be pissed. You're going to be like, you're going to be vicious. You're going to be violent. You, you son of a bitch. I'm never going to work with you again. This sucks. Like that's not a, un, that's not a comfortable truth to hear. Most people don't recognize themselves as alcoholics. That's one of the big things. It's like the first thing, recognize, admit it, like realize you've got a problem. That's the hardest fucking part of the whole thing. Being told the truth. The truth will set you free, but it'll piss you off. Right? So when you have a system where someone can just kind of avoid the responsibility of the truth and the people who succeed are the ones that just tell you whatever you want to hear. They're just going to lie. The person who tells you the truth isn't going to get any votes. The person who says, mm -hmm. man, we have a real bad gambling problem. We have a really bad, the financial system, the banks, banks, you suck. You're fraudulent. Like, you know, like you're cheating the system. That's not going to get any support from the banks. <laughs> Again, yeah, the, his, yeah. his money's going to be like so less and he's not going to succeed. The, the, so the least ethical person is the one most likely to succeed, the, the more structured and centralized and uh, uh, and mon monopolized that that system becomes. Um, because the way to appeal to the most people is to not have a strong opinion, just tell everybody what they want to hear. Um, yeah. And so the same people will own it, run it. All right. So just one last question then, which is about intellectual property. Now, you meant you kind of touched on it a little bit previously where you were mentioning that, you know, about your podcast and if someone else kind of decided to, to do the same idea and, and try and run with it. Now, obviously, in that example, it's very difficult to say, well, that's your intellectual property, you know, to, to do that. But what about these examples of intellectual property? Like, for instance, if you um, if you create a work of art, you create a um, a, you know, a book or a film or whatever it is. Like, do you believe that you can actually claim it if someone else decides to, to replicate it? Because I know that there, there is kind of like mixed thought on this, on whether you can actually claim something. And especially not even necessarily a book or, or a film. Let's, let's go even further on that. Let's say an idea. So let's say an idea such as, um, you know, I want to, um, like, 
patents, for instance, right? Like you're patenting a technology and you say, well, I'm going to be the only one who does it and no one else can make it because patents to me, they're almost like, it's, it's almost like having a built-in monopoly there. You're saying I'm yeah, patenting this idea, I have access. So what do you think about patents and, and IP and all of that kind of stuff in relation to libertarian ideas? I actually think copyright and patent, I mean, obviously they're two different things for a reason, um, uh, but they're slightly unique um, in, in how their situation is. I think patent, the patent system is a terrible system um, in the sense that just like you said, uh, um, and it kind of overall in an arching, overarching sense, I don't believe in intellectual property rights. And that's, that's as somebody as a filmmaker and understands the consequences of that, like, like realizing what that means um, uh, for my my intended means of, you know, making, uh, making money, I guess. Um, uh, but, um, like nobody is entitled to profit from an idea. Um, and also it's important to remember ideas are a dime a dozen. Implementation is one of the more critical things, you know, like there's, it's actually really nuts. So you go through, there's a, there's a book called something innovation the means of innovation or something crap i'll try to remember it and and send you a link to it um i think i have a physical copy of it actually um but it's uh talking about so many crazy cases in history in which people separately who had no contact there's not even like a means for like a network contact throughout all of history invent the exact same thing essentially in different parts of the world like Three people, four people invent it all at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Somebody in China invents it at the same time as in North America or something. Um, it's really, it's really crazy. Um, like the coincidences are nuts because it's the culmination of like putting together patterns that somebody else has created to make your own. But it's important to realize that like owning a, mon a monopoly on an idea um, is to suggest is is an undermining of property rights, not a reinforcement of property rights because like if you make a wheelbarrow like you have a wheel and some wood and a big bucket um and you make a wheelbarrow and uh i uh, uh and then you patent it and i just kind of like go by your house and i see the wheelbarrow and i was like oh that's a brilliant idea and i go make it with my own stuff well then it, again it's it's the it's the idea that like not only do i own myself but i own part of you like which is such a a, a contradiction of the very concept that like, how do I own myself and you when you don't even own yourself um, is the idea of the patent here is that uh, you own the idea so completely, even though I have it in my head, which you don't even know. I think it's completely, completely invisible. You, I take it to my house and I can make my own stuff that you would send armed men to my house and destroy my wheelbarrow. Like it's my bucket. It's my wheel. It's my wood. And I'm allowed to make a freaking wheelbarrow. If I, have that idea. You can't, you're not stealing anything from someone to quote unquote, take an idea. An idea is infinitely replicable. Just like I'm explaining rights and principles. And nobody's, nobody's stealing the idea from me to go make a video explaining rights and principles. They took the idea. I want to share the idea. It's good. It's a whole lot better if everybody's got a wheelbarrow in the case of everybody using a shovel. It's a whole lot more efficient. Things get a whole lot better. Everything's more abundant. Um, so. But then, but then, just to, just to, to kind of push it to its extreme, then what about if mm -hmm. someone's idea is I have this idea for a novel and I've written it down and I put it all in this book, and then you go to the library or you go to that person's house or whatever happens, and you say, "Oh, cool, this is great. I'm going to write down word for word every single every single page Copyright. of this book." Yeah, 
so copyright yeah i guess like copyright um how how do you deal with that is is copyright a legitimate concept it's important to remember one that um actually there's like there's a couple of different caveats here um one is that what has been quote unquote taken from me is my perceived acknowledgement reputation and profit from the book and it is work that i have done time that has taken and energy that has taken from me that someone else has quote unquote stolen um or, or taken for their own use and then are selling but the big thing is that um it's it's not a form of stealing from me more so than it is a form of fraud on their point they're lying to the customer that they wrote the story they're right. lying to whoever is making money off of them, um, like, you know, their contractor or their publisher. They've been defrauded. Um, so that is wrong, but it's still not on me to be able to go steal from them any money that they made off of it. What my obligation is as the content creator, again, we're talking about the limits of violence. I have every right to protect that information as much as I can. So think about it in the context of Bitcoin keys. If I don't protect my seed, there's nothing I can do. Your book is your seed phrase. Um, and we have every right to, and the, and the thing is, particularly in like kind of a consumer situation in the markets that we have come where content is directly um, monetized, like it's its its own industry, so to speak. Um, whereas, you know, 200 years ago, it was only live performance, right? There, there was no... You, you, you like you couldn't fake that. Right. Like like I couldn't, you know, someone nobody can like steal your music if they don't know how to sing and play the guitar or whatever it is. You know, like you, you would go and you would see it in live performance is the only way that you actually make capital off of it. It's a whole lot different now because of technology. Um, so it's a different situation. However, we also have this uh, and I think it's completely outdated as well. Like it, it's kind of it. it it exists in a technological world between the physical and the, and the kind of purely digital open market where we've kind of commoditized the media. Um, and I think what happens is that when we can no longer control the communication rails, because that's, that's what happens is that you commoditize the media and then the control of the structure and the provision of the, the physical content of the CD, of the album or whatever – is really easy to maintain. So we set up these incentive, we set up these structures that don't actually work in the internet where you can't make that control anymore. Like BitTorrent file sharing, all that stuff is really fucked the whole thing. Like the technological reality isn't there anymore um, for that model. And I think we go back to the patron system. It wasn't about like, oh, I'm going to make money off of this book per se. Um, and I'm going to sell exactly this many copies. It was about people loving great content and funding or uh, being a patron to a great artist to keep creating content like they can't fake the sec the sequel you know like they need me for the sequel because i'm the one who wrote the story i'm the one with the ideas i'm the one who understands the character right they just copied it um so there's three things that i think would naturally arise one is the punishment the social and reputational punishment and the network punishment of people who commit the fraud who steal the books who steal the ideas or whatever. And the better we have communication that can't be controlled, the better that social punishment is administered, so to speak. So it, it's, it's when specifically someone has control over how you get content that leads itself to the most, um, the, the most complete 
fraud in this sense, the most complete cheating of taking somebody else's work and being the one perceived as the author or the publisher that owns it, uh, even though you aren't. Um, so the greater the voice we can give to the smaller the group or organization or person, then the better the pushback against that is. Two is the 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 huge market potential here that is the whole point of you know changing the structure of these things is how do you protect it? How do you make sure that the person who actually owns it or actually wrote the novel is the one that gets the credit for actually writing the novel? Um, which means that you set up a Better Business Bureau is a is a great example. Is that it was a complete voluntary thing of basically punishing bad business behavior. Um, is you can report to a a group of businesses that um, basically work to a a very explicit standard, and uh, anybody who misbehaves is informed by the entire network of businesses that do not do business with this person, do not sell this person resources. Like, again, we're talking about like, how do we locally deal with the issue? How do we deal with the issue without violence? Um, and social ostracization is a very important tool there. Um, and in that same sense, creating a network that protects your stuff. If you want to DRM, protect your music. If you want to restrict the means by which people can consume it might not work in your favor but you have every right to try all of those systems just like you have every right to try and protect your seed however you want it um but in the context of bitcoin there's not really much you can do if somebody takes the, takes the seed um and you might not even know who it is and it just might be out there um yeah but uh so it, it sounds, also so means, it sounds like yeah go ahead sorry um yeah go ahead finish uh, and I think there was a third thing and I forgot. Oh, no, it was the patron. It was the patron thing. It was, right. you know, during the 1800s or whatever, the system was just fundamentally different. And I think we have to go back there because it's really kind of a transitional period in which that works. Like it's going to be people interacting with the artists. And this is actually great, too, though, is that there are so many middlemen. The artists get screwed in the, the whole architecture of everything. It's the record labels. It's the lawyers. It's the it's the contracts and the corporations. Those are the people that 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 whole system and the distributors and and the marketers and everything they make the money the artist is almost universally the one that gets screwed and people don't even know who the artist is a lot of the time you know like the number of people who work like are important in like some sort of film project or whatever and get zero recognition it's crazy it really is um uh i mean like backstreet boys they don't even own their music like they can't they can't perform it without like the record label getting the money or whatever. Um, so mm. I, I think we're overdue for a huge structural shift in understanding because the technology just is different. The, the landscape is yeah, different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Actually, is that the it sounds like y your views on this kind of are going to change based upon technology, which they probably naturally should because the nature of what can be considered stealing. I mean, if you go around to someone's house and you break in, you you take the only copy of someone's book and then you take it away and you say, you know, the Lord of the Rings, no longer Tolkien. <laughs> this is the Lord of the Rings. You know, I've changed. I put a comma where there was previously a full stop and now it's, you know, going to be uh, by Guy Swan. And then you go and sell it out. That's kind of like pretty different versus, and someone might say, oh, well, that's actually less stealing than if you just, go and get the film and download it on a torrent and then watch it because that's someone else's work. 
But you might just say, well, the nature of technology changes. You've not actually, you know, you've not actually violated necessarily. You've not gone into their property and stolen something from them. You've taken a, a digital file, which is available, which is information. This thing is now, it's no longer a physical thing, which you have to take. It's now an information. It's now be able to be, to be kind of like universally shared. So our approach to it should change. I think that whereas with, as we were talking about, like libertarian philosophy and stuff, there's much more kind of like these, these grounded principles. I think that things like IP and things like copyright and stuff, they naturally should ch- are going to change because the nature of the action itself and whether it can be considered stealing because you're, you're having a different interaction with the property itself. So those things mm-hmm. are going to change with technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's also important to remember that a lot of these things are like things that we imagine we can control don't actually work in practice, you know, like copyright, copyright is much is generally enforced, um, by the big guy against the little guy, not the opposite. Um, and the same thing with patents is that, uh, and again, going back to the idea that like you can protect it, you know, if you have an idea that you think is novel enough, well then implement, sell the thing and do everything you can't like Coke does like nobody has that recipe. Like they've guarded that thing. Like, I mean, Pepsi tastes the same, but <laughs> they have guarded that thing like a, you know, like a diamond hands for a right. century or whatever the hell it is. You have that yeah. right. I mean, spot, that spoiler right. alert is, is, is sugar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just uh, liquefied sugar. That's it. And they have the marketing, right? Is that like, even if somebody has the exact recipe, they're like, it's not Coke. It's not Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. True. We, have, KFC, we have the golden KFC recipe. Too, we have the, the secret thing, right? It's like, eh, is it that secret? Um, but uh, <laughs> but that's 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 kind of that's kind of what I mean, you know. And uh, so you have the ability, but it's Amazon that screws everybody. Yeah, and, you know, like yeah. people will like post something on uh, Amazon and get like really really successful, and then they make a they make a at scale essentially copy of the exact same thing. Uh, and this is in spite of the patent laws. The patent laws don't protect. They're just almost never almost any monopoly. Doesn't matter what you do. As sad as it is, is the the reality is that the bigger, more centralized monopoly you have, it just protects the big centralized companies and yeah. You've and actually that's just that's just spawned, spawned a thought. This might be, you know, this is one of those thoughts where I've just thought of it on the spot, so it might be it might fall down in an instant at the slightest scrutiny. But we'll see. <laughs> think think about think about this. Like when you have these companies like you know Instagram and you have these companies like TikTok or whoever it is, they all say you know you upload something to their their platform and they're like oh you uploaded it to our platform you know read the terms and conditions you know that you uploaded mm-hmm. it here and therefore we own it so the, but these same people you know hate it when you download digital files they're like you download digital files you know warner or whatever warner music they hate it. you're gonna they'll take your rights and then, but then you can't take theirs. yeah then then they're like what are you doing why are <laughs> you downloading ownership. this thing but then you could just say well you put it in a digital format you used a you use a universal form of communication you chose to take this song and rather than playing it live to me and you know rather than busking to me where you're there the, the artist there with the mm-hmm. guitar you put it into a digital form you put it into a language which is universal you, you know like anyone can read this language computers can read this language it, languages are open source so as soon as you did that you made it public domain you actually made mm-hmm. it like like by that very nature you cannot patent basically the sharing of a di- of digital information if you didn't want that to happen you should have never put it you should have never put it on uh, on the internet at all you should have never recorded it digitally just busk mm-hmm. it in front of me so you could use that argument you could basically say well digital files 
that's a that's an open source that's um public property in the same way as when i upload something to instagram it becomes instagram's property you know like mm-hmm. you could you could definitely make that case i think but you know again that's mm. is a i'm shooting from the hip on that thought i'm not sure whether it's necessarily it's an inter- it's an interesting frame for it but do you think about it too is that one of the reasons like if we'd actually pay a lot of attention to terms and conditions if we weren't kind of throwing off that responsibility to like government to being like, oh, well, like the patents, like, you know, we just kind of absolve ourselves from having to worry about that. So we just kind of like check, yes, all the terms and conditions. Um, But I think if people are actually held to a lot of these situations and there was more, again, part of the environment is like really critical in this. Um, uh, But there was essentially more freedom in contracting and there was less of this kind of government framing of how everybody's going to go get a job and stuff if, if it was more naturally like we're producing value and we are our own corporation we are our company and we need to negotiate ourselves um uh we'd have uh, a massive change in kind of like the cultural mindset of how to treat selling yourself um and i wish we i wish we had it i wish i mean this is this is something that like if we had privatized schools i think would be a critical thing because i would want i want my son to understand that you do not sign a contract that signs away your life it says that you do not you don't sign an nda about like you know who you're working with or whatever like no just don't like 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 and and if you have optionality if you have savings if you're not in debt like up to your eyeballs because you've incentivized to do this you know things are affordable like it's amazing how many structural changes can happen that it'll actually allow somebody somebody to value their personal autonomy greater than some check somewhere um and that ultimately you have a far a vastly more robust and better system on the 50-year timeline after you've got a couple of generations of making sense of this um and people would stop signing contracts and they don't have have any idea what the hell's in it um but it's kind of like it's kind of like welfare is it like nobody charity plummets and you've seen this so many times in history is Charity is like a huge thing, especially in local communities. Um, and then, you know, the welfare state comes in and it leads to resentment. People get the abundance stolen from them anyway. And so everybody stops being charitable. And then charities just kind of be like end up being huge, giant political corruption tools. Like it just kind of like the whole facade just kind of falls away and there's no community anymore. And you just kind of have like this resented corner of the thing that's like walled off in their own like public housing or whatever and it's just a mess and there's this division in society because it's not a community anymore it's people being forced to um it's two it's two groups of people at odds you know um and so not only is the abundance taken away uh and the incentives uh are messed up but then you just kind of have people that where when you're charitable you you're happy you see who you're helping you know, like, like you get this feedback mechanism and the other person is, doesn't feel like they're obligated to it. They feel like they got helped. Like they're not entitled, you know, like when somebody gives you $10, you're thankful. You're like, yes. But then if somebody, if the government's giving you $20 of somebody else's money and telling you, you, this person owes it to you, you hate the person that you actually got the money from. You know, you feel like those stupid assholes have too much and they should give it to me. Um, it's just like, it just, it just messes with how we think about each other and how we relate to each other in so many different ways. Um, so anyway, yeah, I want to just just try to to kind of um, 
round up on that section because like I, there's there's one more thing I want to kind of like ask you about which relates to this and then we can we can wrap up because I know we've been going quite a long time but I just want to like share my thoughts as you were speaking then on on how I would just kind of wrap this up because I think a lot of the questions because there's still a lot of questions left and I apologize yeah. to the people who have asked me to to who have given me these questions to ask and I haven't got to them but, but and I'm I sorry think if that I totally this... tan- like just kind of went on no, 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 I think, I think mess been... and I hope nobody holds it against me <laughs> no but the thing is guy I think that actually what it comes down to is that there's a principle be- there's a principle behind all of the answers which everything seems to be steering towards so I want to just try and highlight that and kind of like just 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 put that out mm-hmm. there because I think that it's at the root of everything. So all of these questions, you can kind of come back to the same route. And that would be, and obviously like I'll give you the opportunity to share your, your kind of like rounding thoughts on this as well. But that would be for me that at the end of the day, all of these things that we're talking about, all of these, um, these, these questions like, you know, how are we going to get affordable healthcare? How are you going to get access to clean water? How are you going to get this, that, or the other, you know, um, how are we going to pay for whatever the thing is that the that people need how are we going to have a better society or is society going to be better is society going to be um you know for instance are we going to have an overall be- better health if we have a public healthcare system versus a private healthcare system all of these questions are somewhat irrelevant because at the root of it you just say is violence required to as a means to your end and if mm-hmm. it is even if the end ultimately is oh well we've all got better healthcare now if that there's violence at the root of it, if there is at the root of it, you're saying, well, no, a government's got to go and put, put a gun to people's head and force people to pay into a tax bucket to then provide the healthcare, et cetera. If that is at the root of it, then you say, well, you're initiating force. You are initiating force to bring about the means. Your means might be great. Your your views, your these things you want in the world might be great. But if they're being brought about by violent means, which they inevitably are in the form of you know, having having government and taxation and all the rest of it, then have you just, you've undermined any end that you can possibly get because you've just initiated force. So mm-hmm. that would be like something that I just want to put out there for the questions that I didn't get to as think about that as, you know, a possible, like, d- does your d- does your question, does that answer your question? Like, does, does it require force for whatever this thing is that you think will be better under a, under a world of, of government, et cetera? Like, is force required? And then just question whether that's moral, like you're initiating force mm-hmm. something about something that you, that you might want. So that would just be something that I would put out there to, to round it up. But I just want to give you the opportunity to round it up as well. And then I got one more question for you, which is a bit tangential, and then we can wrap up. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, I would say that's a that's a pretty good foundation is and that's, that's what kind of led me to my conclusions on like drug laws and a lot of these things as which is funny, like, uh, 15 years ago, you would have considered me like crazy liberal. In a lot of my in a lot of my views, um, yeah, anti-authoritarian, <laughs> um, you know, drugs, gay, like like none of that, like and and that's a that's a great example too because as soon as you start um, creating um, these these structures, like hiding the threat of violence behind twenty intermediate steps, might make us feel better about it because we don't have to see it. But it doesn't do a single thing to remove the fact that this is both an implied and kind of explicit enforcement mechanism underlying everything. So we start making laws about people not being able to smoke weed, about not being able to have gay sex, which is still prevalent all over the world, Um, not being able to practice a certain religion or not being able to be mean to somebody, which is a totally subjective, nonsensical thing. Like me calling you an alcoholic would be considered mean by you. You would be offended can't make a law about like not being offended. That's why free speech is so critical because it's such a completely subjective thing that is completely different from any other person. I'm being nice. Like everybody else is being mean by saying, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're healthy. It's totally responsible behavior. 
I'm the one that actually cares about you. That says, you're an alcoholic, dude. Please, please get something better. I will help you. But I'm the one you're going to be mad at. Not everybody else. Um, so, and then not being able to address somebody by their preferred pronouns. Like, this is actually becoming like a common thing in the UK. Like, that's so dangerous. Because you're not saying that, like, someone has the right to say I'm a woman or, like, my name's Nancy instead of Guy. You're saying that someone else doesn't have the right. To, you're, that some, you have to coerce someone else's speech. I mean, even yeah. the concept of pronouns is actually, it's a third-party thing. Like, I don't respect, I don't say, like, hey, she, hey, she, she, Johnny. You, you know, like, I don't use pronouns when I'm talking to you. I use pronouns when I'm talking about you to someone else, which means that it's a conversation that you're not even involved in. Oh, that's that you're, a good that you're trying to control my speech. You're trying to control my speech when I'm not even there. Like, yeah. no, no, you just, you don't. For the same reason that I don't, that I have no control over anything that you say about me. I don't, I can't control the adjectives. You can't, I can't force you to say that smart guy, every single time you bring up my name, those are my chosen adjectives, right? I'm smart and handsome. <laughs> that is how um, I refer to you, Guy, just saying so you know. <laughs> Good, 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 good. Because I would be very, very pissed otherwise. Um, but uh, uh, so we're implicitly, and so the problem of pronouns, of doing this for pronouns, is exactly the same problem as doing it for gay sex, for, for yeah. being homosexual. It's saying that it is preferable, that on our hierarchy of things that we want in society, uh, an analogy that I've used in the past is that if I go down, if I go into a city, and uh, there's somebody sitting on a bench and they're smoking weed. Is that I, I would prefer, I, even as someone who has smoked weed, I, I would not, I would rather that not be out in the open. I don't want my son to see that, you know, like I, I want that to be known as like a regular, as a particularly unhealthy, at least, you know, like a, a, a habit, um, despite the fact that I think everyone has the right to do that when they choose to. But to say that it's illegal is to suggest that it would be better if someone came up to them with a gun, chained their arms together and threw them in a van and went and put them in a cage. Like, which do I want more of in society? I would take every damn person in the world smoking weed at the exact same time before I would want one person put in a fucking cement box and treated like a piece of shit, like to have yeah. their entire humanity yeah. and life stolen from them. To treat them as if they're just, they're just a bludgeon to the, my opinion, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we have to remember that ultimately that's the comparison. Like, do we want someone imprisoned for uh, refusing to pay or refusing to devote their life to someone else? Because it, it's, it's also important to remember that in practice, it's the, store, it's the poor in the middle class that gets stolen to pay for the poor. Like, like it's, it's, the, it's the poor that get the brunt of all the problem, especially when you're talking about deficits and printing money. The poor, the poor absolutely get of, the screwed so hard. The rich don't get screwed. Inequality gets so much worse. Look, what, look at WTF happened in 1971. Tell me that the system of more welfare, of more printing, of more deficits, of more government programs, of more government control and regulation. Look at those charts. Look yeah, at those charts and tell me the result is better for the poor. No, they're the ones that get screwed because they don't have any political power. Of course, they're the ones that get screwed. They're not gonna, they don't get access to the money printer. They don't get the financial instruments. They don't get to put their money in indexes. They eat the cost of all of it. The whole point 
is to try to make sure because like you said it very early on poverty is inevitable there's whether it's your station in life where there's your time like it's just it's the natural fluctuation of things there's going to be somebody who's wealthy and there's going to be somebody who's poor it's going to be somebody who's broken their leg and somebody who's a brilliant football player like it that's reality that's the universe there's there's no papering over that there's no like making it not the, not true you know um it the idea is that we let people cooperate and we create a system where we respect each other as individuals and we create enough abundance in which we can help each other when those situations arise. And yeah, in which the yeah. cost, even in the case of not being helped, the cost to help yourself is absolutely as low as possible, which means that we have incredibly good provision of things. We have incredibly good trade. We have incredibly good specialization and we have an astounding amount of abundance. And the only way there's not even, nothing holds a candle, like even close. Look at all the systems of government and everything it, and make sure that you are looking at something that has existed for 50 to 100 years. Don't look at it 10 years after it's happened. Look at it on the long time scale. Nothing even comes close to holding a candle to what a free market does. And that is what we need to do. If we want to cure as many cancer, as many cancer patients as possible, if we want people as healthy as possible, we need to remove violent monopolies, which means that we need things in the realm of cooperation, of voluntary human interaction and respecting each other as humans first, not as piggy banks to get what we want for whatever, for whatever reason. You're not my bitch. You're not my slave. I don't care how, like, if you made a, if you have a billion dollars in your Bitcoin account, you are a human. I respect you for being you. If we want to work together, if I think that you could help some of my friends, I would ask. I would ask. I would appeal to you. But yeah. if you said no, that's your right. It's your fucking life. It's not mine. I don't own you. We have to be willing to re morally restrict ourselves. That's, we have to self-reflect about how we are treating other people. And it's easy to focus on the fact that like, oh, I want to make the poor person better rather than think that I'm treating someone else like my slave, that I'm yeah. dehumanizing anyone who has any more and, and most importantly, absolving my obligation to help them. I'm saying somebody else should do it. It's really easy to stand on the sideline and be quote unquote compassionate when I'm telling Johnny to go help that poor person. Rather than just going over and giving them a couple of bucks, buying them a meal, and caring about them. Yeah. Tempering the inner tyrant. That's what you said. You said before. Yeah. I really like that phrase, tempering the inner tyrant. That's ultimately what we've got to focus on. Um, okay. I, I know I said that I was going to ask another question, but actually, I think that's a really good point to start rounding off. So I'm not going to kind of dive into another <laughs> one because that was a really, really nice summary. So uh, I think I'll just let. Um, I'll just let this one go out with you, uh, giving, you know, where people can find you and all the rest of it, where people can find your work. I know that, uh, I would first of all, just like absolutely recommend that people listen to Bitcoin audible podcast, not just because I'm working with you on it, but also <laughs> just because it's, it's great. Like it's, it's just, you know, been so, um, useful in my own thinking about a range of different issues and it's absolutely cutting edge as well. Like, you know, for, for the Bitcoiners out there, if you want to know about the latest stuff that's going on, 
like you can find it all in Bitcoin Audible. It's absolutely awesome. So, you know, congrats with everything yeah. you've done there. I, I know you've been doing that, it for man. a number of years and it, and it, it's awesome. So, you know, I'm really happy to be, be a part of it recently. And, thank you, um, thank you. Yeah, so let people know where they can find you. And also if you can just give any kind of parting thoughts, things that you're excited about, you know, what you're looking forward to, whether it's Bitcoin or otherwise, and, you know, just some, some kind of parting message for my audience too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, appreciate the kind words um, a lot. Uh, and obviously Bitcoin Audible, AI Untrained, uh, and kind of on social and Noster and everything, you can find me at The Guy Swan. Um, that's pr- what I go by basically everywhere. Um, and specifically on Twitter and now trying to do on TikTok. We'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> uh, I uh, am publishing a lot of these short form uh, videos to try to break down some of these core principles and concepts and rights and a lot of these things will be a part of it. But right now I'm just trying to make sense of the monetary system for people. Um, because understanding, understanding how you're getting screwed is, you know, like being an alcoholic, right? The most important thing is identifying the problem is recognizing that it's there. Um, and I think people don't realize the scope, the sheer staggering scope of, uh, externalities of, of second and third order effects that just, the underlying incentives of our money have just completely I talk about the counterfeit class just rushing around the money printer. The incentives are so horrible and it is deteriorating all of modern society. And we're in the largest debt bubble in the history of the world. The history of the world. It's not a coincidence. It's, ex- it's explicitly tied to how our money works. And the social division, the the cultural rot, the the inability to provide services, the the separation between the service provider and the customer, all of these things are deeply tied to this. Um, so understanding that is critical and I'm, I, I, it's not an easy road. It's not, it's not a two minute explanation. It's a very, very lengthy reframing of how we think about things. So I try, I do my best. Um, so check those out. Um, and, and maybe parting thoughts is that I don't want to feel like, I, I don't want to seem like I'm just like complaining about everything and thinking that the world is going to shit quite the opposite actually, um, is that it looks like that on the surface. And one of the big things is that we're kind of going through an identity crisis because we're more connected than we've ever been. And so we're realizing that not everybody agrees with us. And that's not an easy thing to accept. You know, there was this illusion of consensus in the 80s and 90s because, well, everybody's dumbass opinion wasn't available every you know, 24 hours a day. Um, and but we're so deeply connected, I think we're realizing just how many miscommunications and, and lack of thought has gone into just kind of accepting the default way of things. And so we've kind of spidered into like a thousand different ide- ideologies and like ways of thinking about things. And it's created social division and all of this stuff. But ultimately, I think what's happening is actually really healthy. You know, like uh, typically the greatest stress arises when we're sorting things out. You know, um, it's, it's when things are stagnant and nothing is changing that it feels quote unquote comfortable. Um, it's when... Yeah changes that have needed to happen for a really, really long time are finally happening. That's when things get rough, you know? Um, and so fundamentally, and especially with Bitcoin, and I know this probably seems like esoteric and like crazy because Bitcoin is just internet points, you know, like I know people think of it like an app on the phone, but it's a whole lot, it's a whole lot different. It's a whole lot deeper than that. It's deeper than TCP IP. The, the nature of a communication protocol has fundamentally changed the entire shape of the world. Um, and I think Bitcoin is that as well. Um, that at, in an entirely new way. Um, and uh, 
I think it, I think there's fingers crossed. It is fundamentally changing the economics of violence in a huge, huge way. Um, and ultimately a fair system that doesn't know if you're gay, if you're, you're black, if you're born in country A versus country B, uh, what your pronouns are, what do you, whether you wear a dress or a suit, like that does not know a fucking thing about you, does not know, cannot care, and is absolutely 100% fair and objective across the board with a clear, definable set of rules that cannot be altered and has no exceptions for anyone. It's the best thing that ever happened to the world. And uh, an unfair system, I believe, is in the slow arduous, messy process of being replaced with a fair one. And once we have to abide by those rules when we interact with other people, we have to recognize that if you have your keys in your head and I can't get your keys, your money is yours. It is. And you can walk anywhere in the world. You can go to any place in the world and you have that money, you have that wealth with you. It is going to change that power dynamic in such a way that we have to respect each other a lot more than we have. Um, and I think that is in the technology in so many different ways is giving us freedoms and optionality that we've never had before. And even with the mess and the seeming breakdown that we are going through right now, I actually think things are going to get a lot, a lot better. It just, you know, darkest before the dawn thing, right? You know, things are messy when we're changing. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually a ridiculous optimist. I actually think things are going to be great in 20 to 30 years. So anyway, that's that. Nice. I'm right there with you, Guy. Thanks so much. Yeah, man. Appreciate it.